0: This is Jose Starkiller. I never listen to the show podcast. We don't need no stinking podcast. Greetings, friends. Kai Bell Iblis here. I tried tracking you down at the U of A, but when I arrived here, you were apparently off recording some sort of holocast. I've never listened because I'm just too... Wait a minute. When did Alderon get an artificial moon?
1: This episode of the Order 66 podcast brought to you by the generous donations of Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, B. Witzel, Andy Bethel, Darren Hampton, Trevor Hill, and William Sullivan, as well as lots of viewers and listeners like you.
2: Radio, your gamer's role. www.d20radio.com
1: Broadcast live, you're listening to the Order 66 Podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and Wayne Basta, author of the
3: Aristia series of novels. Gamer Nation, GM Chris here. For those tuning in for the first time, this is the Order 66 podcast, the original podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars role-playing. And uh, we are, it is, gosh, it is, it is the 24th of April, um, which is an auspicious night because it's actually the launch, uh, the start of, of Season 5 of Game of Thrones, which means that our live listenership is actually pretty pretty shallow right now. <laughs> um. Uh, we typically have a 10-week a, a lull in live listeners, but shout out to those listeners that are watching uh, this simulcast live in Echo Base right now, and to the rest of you that will be downloading and listening to the podcast later, you're in for a treat. Because I am joined, of course, by my erstwhile co-host, the man with the plan, the armor master, the armor maker, the Jedi knight, the Republic general to my separatist Sith overlord, GM Phil. What's up, dude?
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I was getting ready to watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> what is up, Gamer Nation? It is ha- I am happy to be here, and, and Chris, always a pleasure to be on the show with you. Um, how are you doing today?
3: I'm all right, man. I'm uh, I'm recording. Well, I'm not recording Game of Thrones. I have HBO Go, so I can just pro- now, so I can just watch it at my leisure. But yeah. But honestly, it's not even the most important thing on my mind right now because mm-hmm. we have a show tonight that I've been waiting for for a very long time.
1: Some folks have been waiting for this show since the game was released
3: (laughs) (laughs) And here to help us with that show We have a third voice uh, Who will be joining us uh, yet again After, gosh It's been so long since you were with us, Max
0: (laughs) I know, just ages
3: Just ages um, Since you were last with us But uh, FFG's own uh, Max Brook Sir, welcome back to the show Thank you very much for joining us
0: Thank you so much for having me on It's great to be here
3: Well, I am excited, and we are going to run you through the ringer, and when we're done with you, you're going to be panting, and you're going to feel both sick and elated at the same time, man.
0: Ah, so just like every time I work out.
3: Pretty much, yeah.
0: There you go.
3: Just think, you you don't need to work out ever again. You can just come on the show.
0: Well, that would probably be more exercise than my normal (laughs) regimen.
3: No comment. (laughs) Hey. Well, we have a long show to delve into because we have one of our book discussions ahead and we have a ton of questions uh, brought forth not only by ourselves, but by our wonderful fans and listeners. Um, but before we do that, we do need to get to announce some moments. Do we not, Phil?
1: Uh, we do. We do. What do you say we get those done and over with? Let's plow into it.
0: Hello there.
2: What have we here? Good news.
3: What do we got tonight?
1: Well, we have our featured podcast of the week. Sometimes there's no school like old school. Word! (laughs) Word! And D20 Radio's own Roll for Initiative podcast, it is the original first edition D&D train that keeps burning up the tracks. DMs Vince, Nick, Chad, and producer Matt recently released Volume 5, Episode 176, BF1 Beastfolio, Volume 1. With a review of an OSR product that will bring creativity into any campaign. Broken Towers Games, BF1 Beastfolio, Volume 1. It's a good show as usual, so go and give it a listen. You can oh, yeah. find this You can find this and many more great podcasts at wwwd 20 radiocom
3: Yes, you can. FFG News. Um, so guest writer Brian Young wowed us all with a really unexpected article. Don't uh, kidding. The Spirit of Ahsoka Tano. Uh, Without spoiling anything from Season 1 or Season 2 of Star Wars Rebels, which I won't hear, it is enough to know that an all-grown-up Ahsoka becomes a large part of these stories, and the stunning Season 2 finale has left a lot of fans ravenous with ideas. And Brian pulls at that string with an entire article devoted to Lady Tano. Um, Not only how she could be created or statted out in Force and Destiny, but what she would be like as a character in your own game. Now, whether you're a player wanting to create someone like her uh, or whether you're a GM wanting to use her as an NPC, Brian provides Wisdom aplenty, and it's it's just a great article, and you can find it right now at www.fantasyflightgames.com. Max, have you read that article?
0: I have read that article. Uh, It was a surprise to to me as well. Um, But, yeah, no, that was was fun. I mean, especially in the wake of, uh, you know, recent rebels events not to be discussed <laughs> maybe um,
3: post-show with an appropriate spoiler if we have time we'll see
0: but yeah no it was, it was uh it's great to see that I and mean, we're always excited when uh whenever you know people uh, uh in the uh you know greater star wars media machine uh talk about our stuff so it's it was very exciting
3: yeah yeah it, it's yeah, I'll, I'll bet. But it, it, it was it was a really good article, and then just a kind of a surprise to see. It's like, oh, here you go. But yeah, good stuff, good stuff. And uh, Phil, while people are surfing those inner tubes, they can, of course, head to the one gaming blog that always shoots first, D20Radio.com. No?
1: Uh, they absolutely can. Um... And because that website continues to deliver the best fan-generated content from some of the best gaming minds in the community. We had some pretty good highlights from this past week. Yeah. Um, Chris Hunt continues his Hollow Net Uplink series with another FFG Star Wars stat block you can drop into your game. Tonight, inspired by a recent replay through of Republic Commando, great Chris brings game. his own rival and minion stats for the Super Battle Droid.
3: That is a great game. Um, it
1: was a classic, man. It was an absolute classic.
3: Ahead of its time. It, w- it was absolutely ahead of its time. And one of the best parts of that game was the incredible soundtrack by Jesse Harlan. Oh, yeah. Um, which I have and use in, in my games now. And it's just, yeah, if, if you want creepy, that it's like Star Wars creepy, dude. It's awesome.
1: Because sometimes that's what you want. Oh, yeah. Uh, D20 Radio's own Auden, uh, how do you say his name
3: anyway? Lovely. Odd or, and Lovely. Or Lovely. Uh, or lo- lo- Lovely. Or lo- yeah, better known
1: to myself as Jagger It's Jagger Grita! That's what he is. Throws down another rules lawyer entry in his ongoing review series of Monte Cook's Cypher System. Powerful gaming. An exercise in creativity and experience. The article digs into the core dice rolling mechanic of Numenera, narrative resolution, and XP rewards. Yeah. A couple of great articles up there, and you can find those and many, many more daily over at www.d20radio.com.
3: Word. Daily articles. You can't go wrong. And while mm-hmm. you're at the website, you can, of course, find a couple important buttons on the right-hand side of the page. The first will take you to our forums, where we have a still a very strong forum community, um, even though everyone seems to be migrating to our Facebook page, which we'll talk about in a moment. Mm. Um, and another interesting link, uh, which we would hope you would click on, which is our Patreon link. Or you can just navigate to patreon.com slash d20radio, where if you like the work that the network does and you want to continue to support us by helping us pay for server space and, most importantly, getting the authors for the blog paid for the work they write for just Mm. a few dollars a month, you can help support the d20radio network, the Order 66 podcast, and the other fine casts on the network. Just head to patreon.com slash d20radio and pledge your support. And then, of course, the social media plug. As I said before, stay in the know. Follow D20 Radio on Facebook. We have news and podcast info on a daily basis. A very strong Facebook community, constantly posting nuggets of gaming goodness, questions, answers, nerdy bits of awesome. It, um, yeah, it's pretty much replaced the general banter section of our forums. Yeah, it has. I mean, we, yeah, it's it's and which is good, which is good. But you guys should go there. And even if you're not on Facebook, you should sign up just so you can follow D20 Radio on Facebook because it's a great little community we have there. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter, at D20Radio. We post and tweet show info and announcements regularly. So if you want to be part of the crew that watches the Order 66 podcast and others live, you can do so. Get notified of new episodes, new content, all kinds of amazing stuff, at D20Radio on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, we are going to be doing nothing else this episode but focusing on our meat of the show. Because it is quite a hunk of meat that we have to eat.
0: (laughs) No kidding.
3: Are you ready for this, Max?
0: Uh, well, I don't know if I'm ready, but we're getting started, so... <laughs>
3: well, at the very least, are you up to the challenge, the attempt? I think so. All right, well, then let's, let's kick it off proper. Call- Well, the Order 66 podcast is pleased to welcome back D20 Radio Zone, Max Brook. And Max, I believe this is your third appearance on our Humble Show.
0: I believe that's correct, yeah. Um, For Desperate Allies. um, And then
3: Keeping the Peace. Keeping the
0: Peace and now Special Modifications.
3: That's right, that's right. So you last joined us just very recently, a couple months ago in episode 71, Keeping the Peace. And we are proud to have you back to talk about the recently released and incredibly anticipated Special Modifications the fifth career book for edge of the empire line uh, devoted entirely to the technician for months. There were rumors about this book. Not only would it give the tech loving players a source book to call their own, but there were whispers rumors that it might just maybe fully flesh out a set of mechanics that fans have been literally begging for, for years now Mm. crafting. And this book is, Did not disappoint. And we are going to deep dive into it tonight as we ask Max our questions and yours about the production of special modifications, what went into its creation, and most importantly, how all these features work. So whip out those toolkits, Gamer Nations. Scur your scomp link nice and tight and fiddle with those Hydro Spanners all night long. As we pull Max Brook headlong over the cliff and into the abyss tonight with technician questions and special modifications musings on your Order sixty six podcast.
1: Meat of the show. This is like one of those Texas challenges where someone drops a seventy two ounce steak with all the trimmings in front of you and says, "You got a half hour. Eat it."
3: <laughs> Down here, that's a thing, Max.
0: Oh, I here it's a thing. <laughs> I'm I'm aware of that that phenomenon. I, I can't say I've ever attempted it. Um, uh, I I do have. Uh, some stories about one, one Gen Con where I, I made some mistakes involving a steak, but uh, we'll Ooh. get back to that later if, uh, if it becomes relevant.
3: Oh. I have I have other mistakes at Gen Con stories, but they don't involve steak. Mm. <laughs> they typically involve tequila. Um, as well they should. <laughs> Interestingly enough, none of them are half as enter- entertaining as my mistakes from Gamer Nation Con stories. Uh <laughs> which I believe it which this past year actually involved passing out at one point um Mm. uh so yeah yeah after after starting a game too which is a lot of fun um take
1: over for me I'll be right back
2: (laughs) where the hell did Chris
1: go I don't (laughs) remember it's been 20 minutes did he die (laughs) I don't remember GM Anything.
0: tactic, build anticipation by leaving your players worried that you might be dead. At least he left a sub. He, he left a replacement Chris.
3: I did. I did.
0: And he had, apparently he, he had uh, Chris Bradshaw take over for him
1: for, well, for a moment.
3: Yeah, it was just supposed to be a trip to the bathroom. I remember that. I don't remember coming out. I don't remember falling asleep in a chair in the hallway, but that apparently happened. Yes. Um, so anyway. <laughs> wow. Tangent time. Um, okay. So we are here to talk about special modifications. Um. It is, it is exciting and far out and solid and right on, and people had a lot of questions. We had, what, 11 pages of questions, I think?
1: It's something like that, yeah.
3: Um, and we're going to get to what we can, Gamer Nation, but Phil, I think even though it's not in the notes, we do need to talk briefly about our boilerplate. Um, we, Absolutely. We, we got a lot of questions, guys, and we're going to do our very best um, to, to answer everything that you guys have, uh, but of course we've got to be respectful of, of Mr. Brooks' time, um, as well as our own <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get to what we can. Uh, but if there is a question of yours that you submitted that we weren't able to cover, we do apologize. We're going to do our best to get to everything. Yeah. But let's crack into this book, man. Um, starting with some general questions, production, and overall design. I really want to talk and kind of start this off, Max, with questions about the development of the book and, and the design choices. So I'm going to put you on the spot, man. Give me the hard sell. I mean, there are there a are few fans who will question buying this book. It is, in fact, probably to date The one single book that FFG can virtually guarantee will be bought by players and GMs playing in any of the three lines um, because of the mechanics that are in it. But if you had to explain to a gamer why they should buy this book, what would you say?
0: Uh, well, I think obviously the, uh, the main selling point is the, uh, the long-awaited Mustafarians. No, mm. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> although I actually uh, came to really like all three of the species in this book, despite not knowing much about them uh, at the beginning. But um, no, I think uh, the sell on this book is, is pretty straightforward, um, which is that uh, if you uh, want to be able to uh, play a character who um, builds stuff in games and you're looking for some guidelines on that, or if you're a GM and you want to outfit your NPCs with uh, even more terrifying equipment and you're looking for some guidance on that, um, this is really the, the toolkit, as it were, for technology on the fringe in Star Wars. Um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't get much into um, military hardware. But uh, for any, certainly for any, any game where you're going to be dealing with the uh, outskirts of society, and let's be honest, that happens in every Star Wars game eventually. <laughs> um, or if you just want to delve into mad science no matter where you are, which is a, uh, a, a beloved pastime of my RPG characters, at least. Um, this, is a, this is a book you don't want to miss out on. Um, the uh, new specializations all play to that really well. The uh, cyber tech, uh, the droid tech, and the modder. Um, and they're, they've all got new talents to do that. Um, the signature abilities, um, help you, uh, build stuff and build and optimize your inventions. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's all sorts of new tools and equipment and ships. Uh, and then finally the third chapter, um, one of the, probably the crunchiest third chapter we've done in one of these, uh, supplements to date, um, uh has uh item crafting uh more uh fleshed out slicing rules for um you know duels between slicers and uh just lots of guidance on uh what to give technicians as rewards how to work them into campaigns how to tell their stories
3: that's quite a hard sell Mm. (laughs) so thank you um what overall i mean as you guys were laying this out and thinking about it what were the, what were some of the design goals for the book i mean what were the main things you wanted to see developed for this book everything you mentioned i mean was this things that you said ahead of time okay we got to make sure this book includes that because there was this huge fan expectation hanging over this book or this but the potential for this book for years and i mean talk 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 to me about that what what kind of hard choices did you have to make and what what were the design goals for special modifications
0: yeah so i mean the hardest choices were what what to not put in here because <laughs> you know technology in star wars is such an interesting thing right it doesn't really necessarily it plays an important role in the story but it doesn't necessarily behave the way technology does in the modern world like there's this very archaic feel to a lot of technology in star wars i mean like obviously you see this in in anything to do with the, with the jedi but even just the like run-of-the-mill technology before before luke learns anything about the old traditions you know he's dealing with uh you know, this, this weird environment where they have this crazy high technology, but he also lives on a on a moisture farm. And some things they they use very, you know, simple technological solutions. And then they also have, you know, talking robot buddies who, you know, like are these incredibly unimaginably complex machines, certainly at the time the films were made and even today, really. Um, so, you know, it's this strange mix of like, surprisingly low-tech and, like, casually high-tech that nobody really remarks on. Um, and so, you know, technology is obviously very important, but it's a bit different from the way technology functions in the modern world, too, which is another thing that I think makes it t- so attractive for storytelling purposes. Um, one, of the, one
3: of the things I think, Phil, you had told me once, you, you used a term that I has stuck with me ever since. When you think about Star Wars technology, mm. it's an analog future.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's it's interesting because it's 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 partly that you know like vision of the it's partly that uh, vision of the past future, but I think it's also partly that Star Wars is drawing on even I mean you know obviously uh, these days you know it was made a long time ago, but but even when it was was current, it was drawing on a lot of sources that were even uh, even older and drawing. You know, inspiration for its technology from those. I mean, you see in the designs. You know, like C- early C three PO designs look like the robot from Metropolis. Right. And you know, there's a lot of Flash Gordon in its DNA. And so these, it's drawing from these even older, you know, like works that, w- you know, were were futurist works from prior. So it's sort of always had this retro feel to it. Yeah. Um And I think that's that's definitely part of the, the the feel of the like, yeah, they would nothing would be digital. It would be analog, mm-hmm. in, in Star Wars high-tech computers
1: just don't seem like they were made, or at least back during the original trilogy. I mean, mm-hmm. it became obvious that there was more of an influence from the prequels, but it still feels like it's it's low-tech. It's no. low-tech high- information age.
0: No, definitely. Um you know, it's it's not like when Obi-Wan needs a p- piece of information, he, you know, just, like, pulls it up on his space iPad, even in the prequels, right? He goes to an archive, he goes right. to a physical place to get information, which, in theory, there should be no reason for him to do, but it wouldn't feel very Star Wars-y if he could just access that information anywhere.
3: Right, right. It's interesting.
0: So,
3: in light of that, I mean, when you guys were laying laying out the goals for this book, I mean, obviously, it's a career book, right? So... We, we, expect, we expect the pattern. We expect, all right, I want to see at least three new races. I want to see at least three new specs, um, you know, and new equipment and gear. But, you know, the decision to include crafting rules in this and, and the slicing rules, the workshop section, which are, are the things that kind of have really blown people out of the water. Um, did you guys know from the outset that, okay, this is going to be the book we're going to include the majority of this in?
0: Yeah, so at the early on in the process, we always build a book plan and we figure out what we're gonna we're gonna have in the book. I'm actually got it sitting open in front of me right now, um, so I can remember the stuff I worked on uh, a, a year ago, but um, over a year ago even. But uh, yeah, so looking at the you know looking at that for instance, it's interesting because you know you mentioned like the stuff we expect, and and so you know we have a fairly strong formula for these books. You know we're gonna have the new species, we're gonna have the new specializations, we're gonna have certain new stuff. We're gonna have some GM guidance stuff. But really, there are about 60 to 70 pages that are pretty well spoken for in what content they're going to contain, roughly. You know, this is going to be dedicated to new species. This is going to be dedicated to new stuff. And So, so there are about 20 to 25 pages that are really, like, in flux. And it's mostly in Chapter 3. Um, now, uh, you know, where specific emphasis goes in many of those things goes to the writers. For instance, um, so for crafting, you know we set out a fairly large section for crafting, which the crafting rules had actually already been written or were in the process of being written by the time the book went into, um, uh, went into the stage. Cause I would, had been writing those myself for a while. Um, but on the other hand, workshops, which you mentioned, which ended up getting a, a lot of space because they were a really good idea are just sort of a, a footnote in this, this plan. It's like technician rewards. We should do something with workshops and, I kind of gave that rough concept to the writer and he fleshed it out and it was really great. And so we ended up dedicating a little bit more space to that. Um, But uh, so it's, it's always a kind of a fluid process, but in some cases things are pretty, pretty well locked in from the beginning. And like, we knew we wanted crafting in here. Um, Instead of having a, uh, a, a freelancer write the crafting section, we actually wrote it uh, as a team. I wrote most of it and then everyone else on the team reviewed it and we went over it together to make sure it worked and all that. And we had, to, we had to do that a bit in advance because of the armor crafting rules and keeping the piece. We needed it all to be consistent. So we sort of did it all together and then split it up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh,
1: Max, art in this book, as usual, is just simply gorgeous. And, uh, well, it wouldn't be a series of questions for a, a book if we didn't uh, go off of uh, what Crazy Birdman asked. Mm-hmm. I would like to know if there were more about the artwork. Any stories in there? Are there any characters from the books or comics in there, like Mirax Tarek on the cover of Fly Casual?
0: So, uh, funny story recover- regarding the cover of uh, Fly Casual. Um, uh, if, if people... Are, like the idea that that's Mirax Terek, They are more than welcome to uh, go with that interpretation. <laughs> yeah. um, but that character is actually not explicitly her, though it's not explicitly not her. Um, we, we gave an art description. Um, sure. So if you imagine it to be her, it could be. But that is actually a... a it was not set... It was not, uh, you know... We didn't give a reference of her. Set out to
1: be her from the Yeah, story.
0: I mean, like, there's another funny example of that actually... Um, uh, the, uh, art piece on page 80, the kid with the robot, like I actually kind of imagined to be that, what that to be what, uh, Temin looks like, but the piece was written before I'd actually read aftermath and with no relation to it. so it's just sort of like, Oh, that kind of worked out nicely, but you know, I don't, I don't, it wasn't like there was no plan for that. It just sort of worked out that way. And it's like, Oh, he kind of could look like that the way he's described in the book you know <laughs> um but so that's that's kind of one i like um but like again there was no there was no specific plan for that case so sometimes we do put characters in and, and uh sometimes we don't um one of the uh one of the pieces uh that i really like is on page 91 the uh the old guy with his little droid uh droid little droid repair crew his entourage. Yeah, his uh, his his walking workshop. Um, <laughs> that was uh, that was loosely based on a inspired by a character that uh, Tim Flanders, one of the other developers, played in one of our office campaigns, who who had a little like entourage of droids, and so I was like, oh, that's a great character concept. We should do think for that. So I had him write that art description based on that idea.
1: I like how that picture not only has T seven from the old Republic uh, series of uh, games. But it's also got the frickin' um, customs droid from Star Tours.
0: Yep, yep. He's he's. We just, we just. Uh, we just I, I seem to recall when uh, John Tallien, who is the art coordinator for this book, and I were, we're working on that piece, um, uh, I, he said, what droids do you want in there? And I said, well, like, you know, honestly, you can kind of have whatever droids, you know, the artists can put in whatever droids they think look good. I'll just send a bunch of, bunch of droid references and they can make up new ones or they can use these or find other ones and i don't remember which ones they used but those are those are the droids they found i love how eclectic a combination it is there's like the one mouse droid too (laughs) gonk droid and r5 Uh,
3: the the, i love the r5 has different uh it's it's clearly cobbled together from different r5 pieces yep it's got that chopper look to it you know
0: yeah Um, Another piece that has a a bit of a story behind it, um, speaking again of uh, John Tellin, uh, uh, who was the art coordinator for this one, uh, the one on page three of the table of contents, and also on the back of the book, um, we were talking about things technicians do, and he was like, well, you know, Star Wars is all about these crazy environments. We should do one of somebody in a crazy environment. And, you know, I was sort of thinking, I was like, what could we do for that? And he he suggested underwater welding and, so that piece was basically his brainchild, and I thought that came out super awesome because we do yeah. see all these crazy underwater environments that have these big machines in them, and like you know, sometimes they're on you know Montcalmari, so like oh yeah, in Montcal obviously they can work underwater. They build their ships underwater, even I think. But and I was like, well, you'd need this underwater welding suit, and so we like looked up what those actually look like because people do that in real life, and like researched that a little bit. And he. Really took the initiative on that one, and I thought that piece came out just awesome as a result of that. That's
3: actually possibly my favorite, one of my favorite pieces in the book. I was gonna gonna point that out. Is on that back cover. It's absolutely beautiful, Um, and just the the it's the as well. It's good art, but the lighting. Um, Yeah, Yeah,
0: it's just all good art. Yeah. When we were looking at the reference pictures, John was John pointed out to me that the light does really cool stuff underwater because of the way it it uh, you know. Mm-hmm. The way you end up with the the heat coming off of the uh the heat and the light coming off the welder and such. Mm.
3: Yeah, it's very cool. Similarly, one of my other favorite pieces is actually on page seventy three, speaking of extreme environments of technicians working. And seeing a Wookiee in an exosuit is just joy. Yeah. Uh but yeah, the 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 two guys in the in the in the exosuits, you know, welding on the exterior of that ship in space. Um yeah, the human and the Wookiee. I, I love that piece.
0: Yeah, that one came out really well. John and I actually spent a bunch of time talking about like, what ta- what do we do with the Wookiee in a spacesuit? Like, how do we do that? And it was like, well, there's some old references of Wookies in spacesuits, but the spacesuits look a little weird. So let's just just put a Wookiee in a spacesuit and see what it does. You know, see how it works. Because it's funny. Yeah. No. Exactly. And well, it's like and, you know they can't breathe in space. They need a spacesuit too. So
3: nobody wants to wear the Wookiee's suit. You know, fleas. Yeah. It's, I mean,
2: you
3: know, <laughs> it's <all stretched> out. <laughs> I love it. Now, the other piece, strangely enough, it, page nineteen, the the ma- the maquette of the various species. Yes, the best, yes. the basilisk. Yes, <laughs> yes, Aha! that 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 just tastic basilisk with the awesome like flowing mane of a cape. You know, you know, Let yeah feathered cape. feathered cape and it, it's just the whole idea of ha ha you know <laughs> the, the the look of what's up girl i mean that that's the look oh yeah
0: yeah so that was an interesting one um so we didn't have any uh any good um we, we didn't have any visual references of what a, a female basilisk would look like right um and so uh uh tiffany terrell who's the artist on that i believe um John pretty much just said like, well, there's no design for this, so like let's come up with something and see if LFL likes it. And you know, I think there was some they had some comments to make sure it was more in line with their vision, but they liked it. So like the I don't know if that's a cape or that's like maybe her mane or something like be, a yeah. feather because they're supposed to be bird bird like, so like maybe yeah. that's like a feathery mane. I don't know. It's awesome though. She looks super sweet. Yeah, it's I
3: great. I that. The the tattoos, the uh the jewelry, it's just it's great.
0: Greatness. I also really like how the uh, Mustafarians came out in that one. Yeah. I, I would definitely play one of those creepy bug people. Yeah, the, the
1: southern Mustafarian does not look like a dude you want to piss off in a bar. No. Especially not if he's got that
0: big lava thing on his back.
3: Wouldn't it be awesome if they carried it everywhere? I mean, every adventure. He's <laughs> got a giant, huge, you know, smoldering backpack of lava. It's like, yeah, don't, that, piss, don't I mean, piss him off.
0: That's not the silliest thing I've heard of in Star Wars. <laughs> it isn't. That's the problem.
3: Well, squibs are real, and they exist. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, well, let's dig into Chapter 1, shall we? Yes, um, definitely. Expert artificers, all about the character options, baby. Um, now, we're this not only does this new chapter provide new backgrounds for technicians, obviously, but new obligations and motivations as well. And I'd love to talk about the new obligations um, that are, are present on page 18, Several new and rather unusual obligations in this book. There was crew, uh, contract. I love my my two favorite, though, are failed inspection, failed installation or repair. Okay. I love that one. So you've got this crappy reputation, all right, that you're having to deal with. And similar to that, uh, you know, in in terms of something haunting you, unfinished business, Um, Mm -mm. where you've got this, this, this commissioned work or this long term project that. You know, it's constantly weighing on your mind that you have to somehow finish or fix. Um, I just, I find absolutely hilarious. What can you tell us about these new options, man? I mean, uh, as far as as obliga- as far as these new obligations go, and do you have a favorite?
0: Um, well, uh, so I can tell you that uh, Sterling Hershey, who you know quite well, veteran of Star Wars role-playing, uh, wrote this section. Um, uh, and he's written a fair number of these obligations for us at this point, I suspect. Uh, and so he's... Uh, he has uh, got a you know pretty good handle on what we've got and what we don't. Um, speaking of those two, I suspect that you know, especially unfinished business as a uh, as a freelancer, I'm sure he he knows <laughs> the feeling of a deadline uh, um, looming. Uh, I certainly know it for whenever I volunteer to write stuff for other people's books. Um, but uh, yeah, I really like those. I also, um, I mean, it's an old obligation, but uh, I think. Family is a really good one. Um, it's nice because it automatically creates some, uh, you know, it automa- automatically creates some hooks for your, for your GM um, in the character's family. And in this case, it's nice because it's, like, it's a little bit different from the others um, because, I, you know, I like the idea that, uh, for instance, you know, like, the, your obligation to your family might not just be, like, you know, a broad obligation to provide for them. It might, in this case, be, like, a specific obligation to keep the machines that they rely on functional, you know, like, <laughs> Um, like, actually, uh, debatably, prior to certain events rendering it irrelevant, this was Luke's obligation. Um, you know, (laughs) like, the the moisture farm, uh, you know, like, needed him, and, like, he had these technical skills that they couldn't go without. Um, obviously, the GM had other ideas for Luke. Um, but, uh, but, and I really like that idea, especially because, you know, if, if you've got um, you know you've got all these hostile environments space stations all that like you don't think about it but the technology is what keeps people alive in those environments and so you know like in some cases you know people's existence is directly reliant on that so a character having the skills needed to maintain it is important I, I think that's pretty interesting you can do a lot with that
3: can you imagine gm george you know he's like listen mark i know you really like your character's obligation but but like you know I'm going to buy it off at the end of the session. What? Why? Well, I've got plans, okay? I've got plans. But trust me, I'm going to give you a whole new family obligation in just a few more sessions, okay? Yes, that's true. It does kind of stay a family
0: obligation.
3: (laughs) Very good. Very good. Now, also with that, sort of on the flip side of obligation, um, over on page 3637, we have a new set of motivations um kind of tr- true to form for these these career books so far we have a new motivation type of innovation obviously very fitting um with with 10 new motivations that are very uh they line up very perfectly with the technician's mind frame i mean what can you tell us about these and um and 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 their their genesis and creation as well
0: well again these were these were sterling hershey um again doing his doing his uh awesome thing um uh, I suspect given that I know, um, you know, he is, uh, he's, he's pretty into, um, doing these, uh, these various things, uh, has been, has done a great job with these in past books, did a great job here. I think, you know, he expanded well on what are some, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't just go with the obvious ideas, I um, he He played with those a little bit, but frankly we've got those pretty well covered in the core book and yeah. so i'm glad he was able to to branch this in some really interesting ways um uh especially technological historian um that one really stands out to me as a as one of the ones that I remember during the editing phase, for instance um picking up on and uh and tr- you know making sure got in there and got in there in a uh you know in a really solid way because it is this galaxy with this ancient technological history. And so, you know, even if you think of our world, I mean, like, there are these really interesting examples of people in the past having invented solutions to problems that we still deal with today. And in Star Wars, the galaxy has a much longer, you know, recorded history and much wider spread um, because of the hyperdrive, you know, people are getting around all over the place, so they have access to all sorts of stuff, you know, that we don't. So it's like if you had, you know thousands of worlds with thousands of years of of civilization, you would have all these amazing solutions to all these problems that people face. But as we see, people still face really basic problems, you know, the people who live on Tatooine farm water, you know, like, so it's interesting that like technological history would be, would be so unimaginably expansive in that environment. I mean, and it's pretty much that way just with the one planet we have. So Um, I think that that one that one really struck me is like not just the usual, you know, I want to build new stuff, invent new stuff, because that's what I would normally go to for this sort of character. But that one really made me think like, oh, I could do this character is really not just a not just, you know, a like genius inventor or whatever, but as a like a scholar, as someone who's really focused on the historical side of it. And, you know, for every, you know, like more interested in how things have been done before than specifically finding new ways to do them. Because there are so many ways that things have been done before, that you might, you know, it might be a much better way to find a solution to a problem you have. You'd take like a more archaeologist spent to it. Yeah, yeah, that would actually pair really well with an archaeologist, um, and that would be a cool character actually. I mean, that's kind of—I uh, I think she's got some other uh, specializations, and her career is probably bounty hunter. But uh, uh, Doctor Afra in like the uh, Darth Vader comics definitely. Mm, yeah. fits in it.
3: I'm a huge fan of technological necessity. Um, I think it's a very meaningful motivation, the idea that there's, you know, whether it's a biological problem you need to solve or a technical one, or you need to discover a, a solution to a plague, you know, an antivirus, or even maybe repairing some type of environmental system that's devastating your home world, that you're, you're on a quest to develop something to, that, that is needed for someone's survival, maybe your own, maybe your family's. I think there's a lot of meat in that.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's, that's kind of. Uh, I mean, that's sort of uh, Tony Stark at the start of Iron Man, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the other the other one I would definitely want to play, I think, would be a Technical Rival, um, just because the having an excuse to like, especially if it's another PC in the group, especially if they're not particularly invested in the rivalry, just constantly ch- churning out new crap to try to one up them. I think could be really entertaining.
3: Imagine a PC that doesn't care about the rival at all, but the rival's totally fixated on him.
0: Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> I love And that's that's the type of party dynamic that can be really great too, because like one character can antagonize the other in such a way that isn't doesn't feel like the player's antagonizing each other because it's like, ha, look at this great new blaster pistol I built. It's so much better than yours and it's like, whatever, I don't care, you know. <laughs> and of course that drives them crazier than any response they could get. Yeah, that's that, that's great, Dave. That's great.
1: Awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, go make a bigger blaster. Exactly. Check out my blaster now. Is
3: that a hover sled? Yep. <laughs> There's some really good options here. Really good options. Very. Now, Phil, do you want to uh, jaw a bit about the species? Because obviously we had some very interesting species in this book.
1: We absolutely did. We had three new ones, the four-armed basilisk, a uh, favorite of one of my PCs, uh, the notoriously rough and tumble Dugs, and the Mustafarians. But we didn't get one Mustafarian, we got two of them, two subspecies subspe- of these volcanic survivors. Um, Max, what can you tell us about the design goals for these new species? Uh, specifically, why include these species?
0: So these are all species that uh, that get um, a little bit of play in the Star Wars canon, but uh, you know are not quite as uh, iconic as Wookies. Um, but uh, but we felt they were a really good fit for this book because although um, although none of them are known as uh, uh, as being the um, the specific. They all have, so technology, none of them are known specifically and exclusively for technology, but technology plays in all of their lives in important ways. Mm. Um, So, for instance, uh, the Mustafarians is a pretty obvious example, but they are, because of the nature of their planet, they are very reliant on technology, Um, but they have a very unique uh, relationship with technology because they also know how fragile it is because of the harsh environment they live in. Uh, so that gives them a really interesting perspective as technicians. Um, on the other hand, we have the Doug and the Doug are interesting um, because uh, their relationship with technology is mostly that they've been subjugated by it um, in the form of uh, their, their past dealings with the Grand and the Republic and now the Empire. And so they've often been on the the uh, losing side of of uh, conflicts in which they had uh, they had less technology. So, that leaves them in an interesting place too. But on the, on the flip side of that, we know that pod racing is really important to them. So they have this very technological aspect of their society. um, But, uh, but they've also had, have a complex relationship with it. And then finally, um, basilisks are, are an interesting, uh, interesting choice because they're, although they, they are noted to have a, a technological uh, Inclination—they're not, you know, big technical technical movers and shakers in the galaxy in the way that uh, Duros or uh, Deveronians or some of the species known, some of the spe- or humans there's some many of the species that compete for claiming the invention of the hyperdrive are. Mm-hmm. Um, but they nonetheless take to the galaxy's technology really well, and so they're they're very good at adapting to this, you know, wider technological environment of the galaxy. Um, they also uh, and this is a, a simple thing, but it's uh, uh as anyone who's ever worked on anything with their hands can tell you uh, <laughs> you often find yourself wanting more hands uh, and so that simple thing is a is a, a nice uh, advantage they have as well, especially when they're working on larger projects though honestly whenever i'm I'm working on you know painting models or assembling models, I find myself wanting at least one more hand and probably two so right.
3: Dude, I and, and I, I love that they represent that quite a bit in some of the art as well. Um page thirty six there's a uh a, a, you know, mustached goateed uh basilisk, um who's got two hands holding what looks like an engine uh dripping with grease, the other's reading a data pad, the other's wiping, you know, smudge off of his uh forehead and and uh I, I love it.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great piece. Absolutely great. Dude, I love it,
3: I love it. Do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite of the species?
0: Um, yeah. I of these, I think, I think uh, I was initially least interested in the Mustafarians, and by the end of learning about them from the for this book and from this book, I, I was most interested in them. Um, I like that they're they're this interesting case where they have these two pretty different subspecies. Um. And they have like a, you know, a reason for that written up in the like different gravity and places on their planet. But they also they're they're weirdly they're they're an insular species, which always makes them fun to play in a wider galaxy because you you know, but they're not insular quite for the reasons that a lot of other species are. They're not particularly xenophobic, they're not particularly um, you know, they're not they're not particularly like they haven't had like especially bad dealings with outsiders. They just don't have a lot of interest in stuff beyond their world, so you can you can use that to sort of springboard a character concept where it's like okay, so if most you know most of them are more concerned with matters on their home world, what drives this character to to want to leave you know like is it a is it the way this character differs from the norm or is it a way this character is sort of pursuing some goal that can't be pursued on Mustafar or something like that so it it sort of makes you think about that and start to deep in the character a little bit immediately, which is is always
3: nice. That's that's good. That's good. I like the Dugs, but that's because I like (laughs) Dugs.
1: I dig the Beselisks. I dig the Beselisks. Although there is one, there is actually one complaint I do have about this book, and that's you guys gave the Beselisks the additional limbs quality, the same quality that the Zex two had from Stay on Target. Yeah. When... You had bessalisks in... There was a bessalisk adventurer of some sort in Force and Destiny, and I much prefer the additional limb quality that they got from in that book. I thought that fit the bessalisks a little bit better, because I always felt that the, uh, the Zex two's free extra maneuver for having multiple limbs was kind of attributed to their agility.
3: Are you talking Meanwhile, about the stat in Chronicles of the Gatekeeper?
1: No. In, uh, it's in the... Uh, uh, there's some chapter in... Force in Destiny that's called unu- that's like unusual adversaries or, or 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 galactic oddities, maybe it's called. There's a Besilisk adventurer, and the ability he's got in there is um, basically spend two advantage during any melee attack and you deal the same damage to an additional engaged attacker.
0: Hmm. Yeah, so we, we did discuss that. Um uh, there was there was uh some uh, back and forth on that when when that came up with the team. But uh, the the ultimate decision was, um, because we try to keep species' abilities pretty straightforward, and because we have done additional limbs for a player species in a different way, we decided to reflect it with the more generally applicable uh, Besalisk ability versus the really combat-focused one that character had. Well, I can dig that. I mean, it, it
1: does certainly make sense. I mean, you can think about it as, okay, I'm going to spend my free second maneuver to Brace and get rid of some some environmental difficulty without it costing me any strain sure
0: yeah um so that was where the decision came down on that but i can understand your perspective on it i mean i think if you know if a player and a gm wanted to talk and and, uh have their vessel's have that ability instead that would be fine um that might potentially be the gm's funeral but that would be fine (laughs) Uh, um no no promises if that's balanced or not but i would potentially allow it if a player really wanted that ability instead but you know that's obviously up to the gm
1: yeah, my best looks Force user tends to shred the hell out of people with his double saber, that thing. <laughs> I believe it's, it. It's, it's kind of brutal.
0: It's kinda I believe brutal. it. So, yes, uh, GMs, uh, if you want to give that to your players. Uh, GMs beware. Go ahead, but, uh, you know, uh, just uh, be ready for what may happen.
3: And for those following along, I did find that stat, Phil. Um, it's actually page 417-418 cool. of uh, Force and Destiny Core rule Book right there, yeah. I see it. I missed that, actually. I don't... This is really cool from a combat perspective. I kind of like the PC version presented in Special Modifications better, because sure. it's a bit more versatile. I don't know.
0: No, that was the agree. main reason we decided to go that way. Yeah,
1: It is a little more versatile. So that's Species. The other drool-worthy uh, uh, addition to the book, and uh, included with this book, are the three new specializations. Um, this might be the only book yet released where the specializations weren't the first thing fans turned to, <laughs> but they were most s- certainly the second. Um, you give us three wonderful, flavorful spe- uh, spe- uh, specializations here cybertech, droid tech, and the modder. Um, starting with cybertechs devoted to the installation and modification of cybernetics, what can you tell us about the design goals that you guys had for the cybertech spec?
0: Yeah. So, uh, when we set out to put together the cyber tech spec, I mean, it was discussed with the team. We had, you know, we have our plan of of specializations for books spread out across the various lines and cyber tech was on here. And so, you know, when I knew I was on this book, I sat down with the team and said, okay, what do we want this to accomplish? And there were, there were a few goals. Um, one of them was obviously it should be, should be good at doing cybernetics related stuff. Um, it would be pretty disappointing if it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but on top of that, you know, that sort of core competency, we thought, well, because they do deal, they do interact with, um, you know, cutting people up, uh, and putting them back together, um, uh, better, improved, um, uh, because they do deal with that, uh, they should probably have, uh, some medicine-related stuff, and then we decided, well, you know, there's no technician with medicine as a skill currently, and that would be a really interesting different thing, so, uh, giving it's- them some- medicine skill seemed like a good option. It absolutely fits. Um, besides that, we wanted to play with the idea that cybernetics um, can let characters do things they normally couldn't. Um, obviously, the cybernetics in the core rulebook are extremely potent, some of them anyway, um, especially the arms, legs, and uh, brain. Um, but they're very simple. Um, and they're very simple by design because you know it's the core book and it's a narrative game and we wanted to keep things sane um and not overload people um but uh speaking of overloading things one thing you can't do with your (laughs) cybernetics is push them past their limits um in the core rule book and so we felt strongly that that would be an important thing to have like not only new ways to use them differently with like energy transfer and um other related talents but also the ability to to push your cybernetics past their limits and uh, you know overclock them um and uh, the Overcharge chain went through a bunch of different iterations, actually, uh, in how it worked. Um, but we ultimately uh, settled on, on what it is, and uh, I'm pretty happy with it.
3: I love the Overcharge chain. It's good. It, it's, it's, that's like the epitome of this spec to me. But yeah,
1: it's crazy.
3: What about the custom skill? So you have the sidebar that's there on page 28 um, for a custom skill of cybernetics intellect. I mean, talk to me about this. Why Why this instead of just standard mechanics?
0: Well, the reason we did this actually is because we had already introduced this concept in um, uh, Beyond the Rim, okay. one of our adventures, um, where there was a uh, character with the cybernetics custom skill, and she had a very similar call-out bar with it, and it even called out that she could teach it to PCs. And because we'd done that in the past, and um, custom skills are a concept in the system yeah. from the start, yeah. um, uh, in one of my early in one of the early test games, actually one of my characters had uh, had the cooking skill um as a custom <laughs> skill it's not incredibly useful unsurprisingly, but it came up from time to time um but uh I mean nobody ever wanted to eat what he cooked because it tended to be because he was a transocean so it tended to be sentient creatures but that, <laughs> that was a separate problem um uh, but anyway, so custom skills are a thing that GMs, you know, can and should feel free to introduce. And since we'd already played with the concept of cybernetics being a potential custom skill, um, uh, you know, we discussed it when we were doing this. And uh, Sam made the recommendation, which I agreed with, that, well, let's throw in a sidebar, basically like the one in, in Beyond the Rim. And uh, if people want to use it, they can. They don't want to. They don't have to. It's up to the GM. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. The next,
1: the second uh, specialization that you gave us was droid tech, uh, devoted to crafting and improving droids. Uh, what do you, what can you tell us about your design requirements and, and what you wanted to accomplish with this one?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, for the droid tech, um, we uh, we knew that we wanted to have somebody who was good at managing droids. Um, uh, one of the immediate things I knew I wanted to have in this tree when I was putting it together was an improved and supreme version of speaks binary. Cause <laughs> I love that talent. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing that was uh, important to work in here was, uh, I for detail and, um, I for detail is also in the, um, cyber Uh, it's mm-hmm. not in the modder for reasons we may get into in a minute. Um, yeah. But uh, eye for detail really helps with crafting, and because we have droid crafting rules in here, we felt it was important to have that in here. Um, uh, besides that, we wanted to give them some things that were similar to things that the uh doctor can do for non droids. Um, so for instance, we gave them uh, a talent that lets them repair droids more efficiently in the same way as surgeon. Uh, we gave them the ability to uh, improve their droids uh, or nearby droids uh, in the same way that a uh, doctor can use stem application and improved stem application. Um, so uh, there was a lot of room for parallelism there, um, which uh, I think worked out pretty well.:
3: I, It did. I, um, I noticed that that link as well or that that comparison. Um, and I also have to agree with you, I think improved speaks binary. I giggled and chuckled when I saw that it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so it's very good but we actually also had a listener question did we not fill about one of these
1: talents uh, we did, it comes to us from Richard Buxton who is joining us right now in Echo Base chat, hello Echo Base uh, he had a couple droid tech questions, uh, first one was can a PC droid use reroute processors on themselves to
0: temporarily adjust their characteristics yes, it was part of the intention that a droid, a droid could be a droid tech um, why not? The specialization, actually, speaking of playtest characters, uh, there was an early test game where we had a droid mechanic who was obsessed with uh, um, droid rights and eventually became uh, something of a galactic menace. Um, But uh, we knew that we... He he served as a bit of an inspiration for this, uh, this specialization. And one of the things, you know... So, yes, the thought is a droid could easily be a droid tech and... Uh, whether they branch into it from some other special from some other uh, specialization or career, or whether they are a droid built to work on other droids, and they can use that ability on themselves in doing so.
1: What about redundant systems? He uh, goes on to ask, "Can a PC droid use redundant systems on themselves to harvest parts for repairing other machines?"
0: I don't see why not. Um, no. Within the restriction that the core rulebook says uh the two machines have to be of roughly roughly comparable technological level and complexity yeah. um yeah i don't see why not that seems like a perfectly good use of redundant systems to me
3: see it cracks me up listening to your your story about the pc droid you know that inspired this and just the differences in play groups because my play group if we had a pc droid that decided to go droid tech it would be because he wanted to create like you know he All could spring. like No, like he couldn't find a date, so he wants to create the love of his life. Or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, no, that, that droid was too busy trying to romance our ship's computer.
3: Oh, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> With middling success.
3: All I can picture in my head right now is Bender. Yeah. Hey, girl. Yeah, hey, like girl. That. A little bit like that. <laughs> hey, baby. Hey, baby. <laughs> but I imagine this Dr. Frankenstein-style droid. He keeps creating droids, and he's like, hey, you want to go... Have some oil together. It's um, no, I've I've got I've got to reroute my servos. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just
0: you, you just created the most depressing, uh, the most depra- the most uh, ethically questionable and depressing character I've heard of all night. <laughs> <laughs> right on
3: and he keeps trying every every session. He's made a new droid and they just keep rejecting him. Oh yeah, <laughs> that could be great. <laughs>
1: Which brings us to the last of the uh, specializations in this book, the modder. Uh, my God, is this a drool-worthy spec. It is. Uh, it doesn't focus on building things from scratch, but modifying existing
0: tech. Um,
3: Which makes, all right, so, that makes sense. I'm guessing that's the reason I for Detail is not in this as well.
0: That yeah. is correct. The modder, so it's, it's sort of a, a difference of philosophy. Uh, when faced with a problem... Um, the other two uh, specializations and, you know, sort of invent, more inventory technicians are going to be like, okay, I can build something to fix this. But the modder, you know, pulls the power source out of somebody's blaster, you know, wires in the toaster, and then is like, oh, that's close enough. Um, you know, they're all about putting together things that already do, already function in a way and either turning them to new function or boosting their function to solve problems they wouldn't have before.
1: But man, when you start getting into uh, the crafting system, and we'll talk about this later, I for Detail can just... Man. It, yeah. it, it, it can really, really help you get some of those extra abilities, including the the, the ever-so-coveted uh, no-schematic, if you're able to just turn successes into
0: advantages. Mm, no question. And to compensate for that, we gave the modder two jury rigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah true, enough. Um, true enough. The modder is the... the king of modding appropriately
3: and i'll be quite frank when this book was announced i was going through and i was like hmm i'll bet they're going to reprint the rigor in this yeah from yeah. uh from, from from stay on target because it, it made sense and there's other reprints and i'm like okay well the, rig- the rigor That's
0: that would make that too. would
3: make perfect sense but when you dig into this tree for the modder you know half the tree is obviously heavily focused on sharp starships Mm-hmm. But the other half really isn't. It's focused on gear, whereas the rigor is all starships for the most part. Right. So yeah, the other sense. thing
0: about the rigor is that the rigor we considered reprinting the rigor here it was discussed because we we don't like to make specializations that do the exact same thing as other specializations. It's mm-hmm. something we try to avoid. Um, so you know, there was a conversation where I sat down with Andrew Fisher who worked on Stand on Target, a couple other people, and said, "Okay, do we reprint the rigor? Or do we do something new?" Um, and we decided that really the rigor just didn't fit that well in the technician and didn't fit that well in Edge of the Empire. It's a very Age of Rebellion-focused specialization, mm-hmm. and it works perfectly mm-hmm. there. And a lot of its talents were worth pulling into a new one. But the other nice thing about this is if you want to do both, you, yes. can custom, you can get yourself a custom uh, uh, – you can get yourself a signature Corellian Corvette.
1: You can get it to signature seven.
2: Dang.
0: Um, I mean, you're doing two full specializations that way, but yes. Uh, and we, we thought about that, and we were like, is that a problem? And they were like, no, this is a good thing. If you want to do both, uh, if you want to invest that much experience in having, an, you know, like your big signature vehicle, do it. It's awesome. No, I dig that. I dig that. This you, is the
3: Millennium Falcon?
0: You have to get one of those first. So, like, you know. True.
1: True. And I do like that. I I I, I dig that you guys. you guys sort of set a precedent. Kind of early on, that okay, some trees may appear in later books, but i I really enjoy the fact that you haven't done that much at all that since that first year and that f- kind of first round of books, we haven't seen duplicates of of trees we've always gotten no, something new been,
3: and
0: I, I did that I,
3: I applaud that yeah it's been rare and, it, Duplic- and it, yeah.
0: duplications I think I mean in something in some cases they're definitely a good thing, and um, you know again i it's better for in my opinion, and this is, you know, the general opinion of the department, that if it's a different game line and, you know, there's this, there's one that's just perfect, we should reprint it. Um, yeah. Because we don't want to make something that's the same thing, but, you know, slightly different. Partly because we don't want people to be able to stack a lot of their repeatable talents in those, and partly sure. because it's just not very interesting. Uh, and, it's, and it's more... Um, it actually is is more interesting to give a specialization in a different career than to give a another thing that is basically the same specialization. Um, because putting a specialization in a different career does change it in certain ways. Uh, but we try to do it very sparingly. It's something that happens only when it's really the right call.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: Gotta admit, I will be absolutely shocked if the Heavy from Dangerous Covenants is not reprinted in whatever the Soldier book is. Absolutely shocked.
0: But... That's a product that hasn't been announced yet. So let us move on. I was <laughs> say, your your speculation has been noted and I cannot speak to future plans. Word.
3: Of course. Of course. We we did have a question actually uh, from Mandalore, the ultimate, and it yes. actually relates to the gearhead talent in modern. Now, obviously that's not a, a book specific talent, but it, it's, uh, he,
1: it is quite a common talent as many of my technician playing PCs will attest to. It, it is
3: very, very, very techniciany. Um, yeah, a simple question. Uh, do multiple ranks of the second effect of GearHead stack? And if they do stack, I mean, like, for example, three ranks of GearHead, would that give you one-eighth of the time to mod attachments?
0: Uh, they do not stack. Page 136 of the Edge of the Empire core rulebook calls out that they don't.
3: Ah, well, there you go. There you go. And I could answer that, too, but I wanted to let our developer answer that it's there they yeah. asked
1: the question for the devs yeah. not just for us man I, the, the, this this gotta is, let it happen
3: you gotta of course of course plus I'm any to answer it. any excuse to to hear max's sultry tones is a good excuse i'm yeah. just gonna say that so there i try <laughs> okay so following our specializations which i love mm-hmm. um we have our two signature abilities because of course this is a career book as we've come to expect um our two signature abilities, Inventive, Creation, and Unmatched Calibration. Um, we actually had some listener questions for both, so I'd like to take them one at a time. Um, inventive Creation, basically, it's creating something from nothing <laughs> when, yeah. you, when you get down to it. Um, can you talk to us about just the, the goals for this ability, Max?
0: Well, when we sat down to develop these signature abilities for this book, um, there was a... Uh, there was there was actually much more of a concept for unmatched calibration than there was for inventive creation going in. Um, there would been there'd been some notes um, jotted down for like, you know, the um, the smuggler will get the ability to um, to like ch- change flip you know change rotate dice, and the technician will get the ability to re-roll dice. But like, you know, that, so those, there was that for that note for the unmatched ability. So we, we had that. But the other one, we didn't really have a lot of a strong concept for. I think the name, I think there was just a name. I think it was Inventive Creation. It was just like, Inventive Creation, and then it didn't say anything. So, you know, we sat down and we we're like, all right, well, we didn't have a prior plan for this. So what, what, what do we do about it?
1: Um, I and want to know which one at the table raised their hand and said, I want an ability that recreates the montage from any MacGyver or A-Team show.
0: So basically <laughs> that was what happened. We decided that it would be a real shame if the technician book came and went and you could not recreate uh, a scene from MacGyver or the A-Team at your table. Yes. Um, uh, so that's kind of where that came from. You know, that's a very cinematic moment. The person is like trapped in the, you know, maintenance closet and they have to get out. And they've only got, like, two gallons of Starship paint and, like, a box of old wires and, um, you know, their their glow rod and, like, a, uh, I mean, something really silly, I don't know, like a...
3: A A Stormtrooper action figure.
0: Yeah, a Stormtrooper action figure. And they have to to get out and and save the day. And Uh, somehow they build a tank. And somehow (laughs) they build a tank. So one of the things is, though, interestingly, uh, I wouldn't say, I, I do want to take, uh, take issue with one thing you said earlier, Is that the power doesn't create something from nothing. What it does is it creates something from the environment. Uh, uh. And it is, it, is up to, it is on the uh, GM to some degree, but I would, mostly, I would say the GM is free to put this back on the players to say, well, where is this coming from in the environment? Um, so, you know, in most environments in Star Wars, there's stuff around that you can work with. Um, one of the ideas I really like for this, um, I talked about this a little bit in, in one of the articles for it, but uh, I really like the idea of, you know, if I was GMing and someone wanted to do something, I'd say, okay, so you're, you you know, we've established you're in this hangar bay and you want to build a speeder to, you want to build a speeder bike so that you can fly out of this, like, ship you're trapped on that's in the atmosphere. Um, you know, so what are you going to use, what's in there that you can build a speeder bike with? Uh, and then they have to figure out, you know, like, well, okay, so you know, there's this thing, and there's that thing, and there's the other thing, and then then once they've established that like there are these things in the environment, suddenly those are things I can use as GM. So they're like, oh, there's a big old stack of power cells. It's like, well, perfect. So that's getting tipped over during the ensuing firefight. Um, you know, there's a uh, there's a, a thing of uh, you know like uh, uh, th- there's a like a large uh, bin full of um, you know, materials on one of the shelves and it's like, all right, well, when the force using villain busts in, those are getting thrown at somebody. Um, you know, there's a, th- there's a thing labeled sharp objects up on a shelf, you know, <laughs> perfect. Uh, so it's like all these, all these things that give you like later options for, for the encounter and sort of just help flesh out the scene. So that's the sort of thing I would generally ask of my players in that situation, because it just helps. It helps, it helps ground the whole thing. It makes it feel less like it's just, you know, uh, it, it makes it feel like it's it's part of the narrative and not just a game mechanic. And that's right. that's one of the things we try to do with signature abilities, and I always encourage when people use them, is like instead of instead of getting stuck on the game mechanic part of it, try to think about like what this is doing in the story. So like what would be there that you can you can build this, you know, like uh, potato gun that shoots grenades, you know, in this bathroom? Why is there stuff in a bathroom that you can do that and how do you get it into this? contraption you're trying to build without blowing your hand off you know <laughs> um and i think it's fair for the gm to to put that back on the players to some degree and be like all right so what do you think and then you know the gm should be open to their ideas obviously um if they're going to put that back on them but that way you know when it they turn like a bucket of bleach and some you know like uh other mysterious cleaning supplies into something that explodes you know it feels, it feels like that scene where they, you know, they open up the closet and there's the stuff they need in there instead of just, like, them teleporting materials in or whatever.
3: Right, right, right. This is this is true. This is true. Now, okay, now on that narrative bent, though, in construction, we had a question from Darth pseudonym who wanted to know about um, this signature ability. He says, it seems a lot like the contraption talent. It's, just, it's harder to use and only creates an item rather than a more generic solve a current problem language in the contraption talent text can you compare contrast these two abilities and what's the deal with them?
0: Yeah, definitely. So we thought a lot about contraption with this. And one of the reasons we almost didn't go this direction was because of contraption, but we sat down and we discussed that, uh, discussed it. And the decision um, that, that we settled on was that it's different enough from contraption for this reason. Contraption pretty specifically builds a device to solve one problem. Um, It's useful, but it's a one use, you know, one problem kind of talent. Um, inventive creation you can potentially solve a lot of problems with what you create as long as you solve them quickly enough
3: you can solve Um, a lot of problems with a grenade launcher i'm just exactly
0: um so introducing an item to the scene is fundamentally pretty different than solving a problem once Mm. um now in some cases it might be justified that like you know I want a contraption to build something that like opens this locker. Well, I have 85 more lockers to open afterwards because we don't know which one the money's in. Like, okay, it's going to work for all 85 of them because having you make a check every time would be stupid. Right. Um, but on the other hand, you know, like in many cases, you know, you know, I would, I would say with contraption, you could build that like locker opening device, which is like, I don't know, a crowbar and a like spring loaded something or other. And, Probably a little stormtrooper action figure taped to it for some indiscernible reason. <laughs> um, but uh, but you, if you build an item with a with uh, inventive creation, you can build any item that you think could do that, and then you can use it for its other uses as well. So you know, like if you build a, you know, like if you build a grenade launcher to blow up a door, it's going to work just fine as a grenade launcher on the stormtroopers on the other side. If you contraption something to blow up a door, you're pretty much you've gotten your full utility out of it.
3: It yeah, makes sense. I would also say that with unmatched creation, you have a whole set of 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 upgrades you could apply to make the t- to make the talent even more potent, which you can't do for contraption.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's certainly on a different scale as a signature ability, but it's it does it does different stuff from contraption in that it isn't. It isn't a sort of one-and-done thing. It, it creates something that's going to work for a while. Now, I mean, when it breaks, it breaks, and I encourage GMs to take advantage of that, but...
3: Yeah. Jimmy Fett is uh, in, in Echo Base uh, watching live. He says, There is no problem that cannot be resolved with a sufficient amount of explosives applied in just the right way.
0: I mean, 92%. if you have enough explosives, you don't even really need to worry about applying them in the right way. you <laughs> apply them enough ways, you'll get the right way eventually, right? <laughs>
1: So blast radius is for amigos.
3: So Phil, what about unmatched calibration, man?
1: Ah, uh, yes, unmatched calibration. Uh for two destiny points for two dice worth of rerolls. <laughs> so you've already mentioned that you, you the idea was that technicians would get to reroll dice whereas smugglers and and their ability would allow them to change the facing of dice. Um what what other uh, uh what are the requirements and what are the goals that you have about this uh, signature ability?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we always try to design one of these signature abilities is more narrative and one of them is more mechanical. It varies. Sometimes you'll get two that are kind of more in the middle and other times you'll get, you know, one that's really, this is probably the most extreme case. Um, this is one of the most mechanical signature abilities in the game, but we wanted something to reflect the really meticulous nature of the technician. And the fact that like, you know, when they do the job, they do it right. That's part of, that can be part of a technician's identity. I mean, I think there's a fair case that many technicians might not take this because they're too busy inventive creating, you know, like nonsense in, uh, nonsense that's going to break, but this is the really, you know, focused, uh, regimented side of the technician. That's all about like, you know, keeping calm in the face of problem and in the face of unexpected problems and like dealing with issues as they arise in an efficient manner and all that. Um, so we wanted something that reflected that, um, uh and, and rerolls are a nice way to do that. They're not something we do much of in this system, and I, I believe this is the only way to reroll specific dice. Mm-hmm. Um so we knew that it was a nice new mechanical space too. Uh, mm, there uh hotshots can the hotshots have a talent that allows them to re positive dice. Mm, mm-hmm, that's right, they do. You're right. So there are
1: one or two ways,
0: but it's fairly rare.
1: Right. And that's only positives. That's only yes. positives.
0: Yes, you can do negative you can do negatives with this. Uh and then of course yeah. you can all do all dice with uh naturals, but Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah so that was one thing we wanted to do with it um another thing we wanted to make sure was that it wasn't uh, another thing was because it's a very mechanically focused ability we wanted to make sure that it could be done frequently hitting the balance of having it be able to be done frequently enough to be interesting because it, it isn't a big splashy scene stealing ability on the one hand but on the other hand you know, we didn't want it to be usable so much that it was just used for everything. Right. Um so finding the right balance there was tricky. But fortunately, you know, we had testing for that and um it uh it you know it, it bore out that like it's good, but being able to use it a few times a session is okay. Um and uh you know it's uh it's potent, but it's about on par with most of the other mechanical signature abilities.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's uh, well So, uh, Saron actually had that. He said, on on unmatched calibration, this seems to be a potentially game-breaking ability. I mean, how much has this been playtested? Were there issues where it's broken campaigns? He he was really curious about.
0: Yeah, I mean, we didn't run into any in our testing. I mean, I think, potentially, if the GM and the players are not on the same page about signature abilities, they they can be a really challenging thing to handle. I mean, like or the players and the other players are not on the same page about them. Like many of them can be used to really steal the spotlight. And that's actually the intention that like a signature ability kind of lets you focus the spotlight on your character for a minute, but you know, like hopefully it's just for a minute, you know, it's like, it's a quick thing, you know, you get to, you get to do your cool thing and then you go back to, you know, someone else in the limelight. But like, obviously, you know, group dynamics can come into that too. And that's something we can't really design for one way or the other. So we always try to include a lot of, sidebars and such like the, you know, the narrative signature abilities to give GMs guidance to remind them like, Hey, make sure the other players aren't getting bored while this one person's fiddling with their dice optimization for 20 minutes. You know, don't let that happen. Like keep the game moving. Um, uh, but that's a challenge in any system, you know, in any game that's, that's more of a group dynamic problem and we can give advice for it, but you know, at the end of the day, that's, that's kind of it. Um, uh, so, I mean, is it extremely mechanically potent Absolutely. Um, I don't know if I think it's better than Unmatched Fortune from a purely numerical optimization standpoint. Um, I haven't done out of the math on both of them in a while, and I don't remember where they came out. I think Unmatched Fortune might be a little bit better just because of its ability. Just Well, it's kind of an intangible because you're trading guaranteed... You're trading the possibility of a guarantee versus a better possibility, which is kind of a weird trade-off to be making in the first place.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um. But, I mean, suffice it to say, we've looked into all of these pretty deeply, and, you know, this is good, but Unmatched Protection, one of the first signature abilities, just makes you really hard to kill for a while, which is pretty hard to compete with. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, uh, the ability to reduce the difficulty of all career skill checks is pretty amazing. Um. Uh, for the, the colonists... Uh, unmatched expertise, I think. Yeah. Um, So, like, they're all really potent to the point that they're kind of hard to compare with each other. I think, as with all signature abilities, you know, as long as the the GM and the player are on the same page about it and everyone's trying to make sure that everyone on the table has fun, I'm not too worried about this one or any signature ability. Yeah.
1: I also really like the sidebar you talk about how the... Changing a, as the example gives, changing a uh, despair result to a normal uh, purple with a blank result doesn't mean that you're like rewinding time or that you're you're trying to figure out okay what you're, you don't have to come up with okay here's what happened here actually I like how you incorporate that into okay you're about to have this really horrific thing go wrong but you quick you think quickly and and fix it
0: yeah yeah unmatched calibration is definitely the most like purely mechanical signature ability we've done so far which appropriate for the technician um and uh the reason we added that sidebar where we that, that was a new sidebar in this book and the reason we added it was because of feedback about how people were like i'll oh, kind of you know i don't quite see how this works out and we're like okay so we clearly need to offer some more guidance i'm like well what is this doing really like you know it's very clear what inventive creation is doing but what is this doing we should offer some explanation for that so that was why we had that makes sense makes sense, dude.
3: Well, all right, we are, we are an hour and 20 minutes into this show. And in, in the interest of time, I, I think we should plow into Chapter 2, Tools of the Trade, um, where Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, we had just a ton of questions. And um, I, I really want to focus, for the most part, um, on really digging into the listener questions we had um, around Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. Um, and so Chapter 2, Man, Tools of the Trade, the first few sections, really all that delicious equipment and gear. Um, And first off, Darth Cuddles wanted to know who wrote the chapter on new weapons. The rivet gun in particular was Comedy Gold, and I want to know who to thank for it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So I was just looking in the book plan about that. Um, uh, That chapter was written uh, by uh, Monty Lynn, Sterling Hershey, Jordan Goldfarb, and Tim Cox. Mm. Um, And that particular section, I believe, was written by Monty Lynn. So... Thank you, you Monty. Want to chase him down somewhere. <laughs> I don't know what conventions he usually goes to. He's been at Gen Con in the past, but I don't know if he'll be there this year or anything. But that's that's your guy for that one.
3: Well, and okay, so and so on on his thing with the rivet gun. I mean, there's a slew of new weapons and gear in here, but there were entire sections on using tools as ranged and melee weapons. And I don't know about Love you dudes. guys, but any GM I know, including myself, has had their mechanic player ask to use a wrench or a welder as a weapon because it's just very fitting. Um, but you guys actually included stats for it <laughs> with these with this this custom attachment concept. So can you talk to us about this uh, and about these custom attachments?
0: Yeah, so custom attachments were something we thought up um, partway through the book, actually. Um, I seem to recall uh, because a bunch of the writers had thought, Basic well, because we have this whole attachment system, and and technicians are clearly supposed to interact with it. There were a lot of attachments in the attachment section that got written up, that were like for specific items, and then some people included attachments in their sections, and so it became clear that like we need to be able to interact with this system and have players interact with this system because it's fun. People like it. You know, the attachment system is. Is uh, especially once you get into the swing of it. It took me a little while to understand it at first when I was playing in my first test game. But once I got it, I was like, "Oh, that's a really cool system. I can you can actually do a lot with that." Um, and so, from a you know from a design standpoint, we wanted to include stuff for people to play with because if someone's buying their book, this book, they probably want to fiddle with their equipment at least a little bit. So we we wanted to have it in there. On the other hand, so many of the st- so much of the stuff we had in here was so weird that we didn't feel like we could include it. Like a lot of these attachments don't work for anything but the uh, specific thing they're made for, <laughs> right. and so we had the thought, just like, what if we just had a new type of attachment? It just only appears with the type of weapon or with the weapon it goes with, and that's that. Uh, and it can only go on that one. And but it uses the normal rules, it uses the normal system. You don't have to learn any new. I think yeah, I think when the first drafts came in, some people had ideas of having like checks you could make to upgrade things, which is kind of a cool idea. But like. Attachments kind of covers that, so we wanted to keep it simple, as simple as possible, and this seemed like the simplest solution.
3: Well, I—it's I, it, like with the attachments, also, I, I just have to comment on the elegance of the design, and I'm specifically looking at the ranged weapon tools. Um, yeah, because you're like you're like okay, the ion thruster gun. Well, it's like okay, damage five, crit four. I mean it's cute, but why would I ever do that? It's got cumbersome five. Oh, it's got a prepare one. I mean, yeah, it's got concussive and ion, but but oh man, but then if I'm a technician and I put on that 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 shape nozzle custom attachment, it's like I can I can potentially give this thing Pierce Five, at which point that's a really powerful item. And you yep. and
0: get to remove the ion quality so cut people in half.
3: Exactly. And, and 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 so the, I mean with, I mean and with that you you know I mean yeah you got to range your short but but mechanically these are just very well balanced very well designed to not be go to I'm gonna I'm gonna get this weapon or I'm gonna use this tool as a weapon if you do it it's for flavor but then if you really devote some time into it it could become a very comparable powerful item that's very unique and situational so I I just have to compliment you guys on that.
0: That's part of the reason we tried to keep them cheap, too. Thank you very much, by yeah. the way. Um, that's part of the reason we tried to keep them cheap, too, and also why we tried to work tool rules into their rules. Because one thing we did want to make sure was, I mean, some of them aren't particularly useful on their own because they're more, you know, like uh, a part of something bigger than a than a specific tool on their own. Like an ion thruster, you know, you, you build that into something, but sitting around on your desk, it's just a paperweight. Right. Uh, I mean, it's a very fancy paperweight that's good at setting paper on fire, but it's, you know... It doesn't really do much on its own, but like a rivet gun, we wanted to make sure that had rules for actually riveting things, because then you have a reason to carry it around as a mechanic instead of just a blaster equivalent because it's like, well, if I want to rivet stuff, I can do that, and also I can rivet people to nearby surfaces <laughs> if they make me angry. <laughs>
3: Bunk! I, I love it. And the multi-goo gun, I've got to make a pre-gen PC that has a multi-goo gun. It's like ensnare four, ensnare four. Yeah, I'm yeah, I, I love it. Gotta happen. I love it. So, Phil, we had we had several, lots of questions. Let's get into them, man. What else What else do we have in, in, in equipment and gear?
1: All right, so Mandalore the Ultimate wants to know how did you come up with the DH 17 pistol? What did that stem from?
0: Yeah, so, um, again, I believe the section was written by uh Monty Lennon. You'd have to chase him down to um to get the specifics. Um, my guess is that it as with many of these things, it seems like a natural extension of the things that already exist. You know, the, so I assume he's talking about the DH 19. Yeah. C- yeah, yeah. DH 17.
3: I think he's talking about the DH 19. Yeah.
0: Um, because the DH 17 is a pre existing thing. It's the blasters used by the troopers on the, uh, um, on the tantive at the beginning of right, episode four. Right, right. Um, and I think it shows up a bunch of other times cause all the weapons do. But, um, uh, I mean, I think it's just, it seems like a natural extension of, of, you know, the weapons that we already know about. And that's where a lot of our weapons come from, beyond the basics. Because we sort of cover the basic options pretty well in the core book. And sometimes some of them work their way in other places. Um, You know, we had Leia's uh, blaster from Endor in in, uh, Desperate Allies, for instance, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, a lot of the times it's sort of, we either pull from older... You know, older game and RPG materials or other ones we've done, you know, um, Imperial Salt and the card game and such give us lots of good ideas. Um, but then, you know, a lot of times it's just like, well, what would exist? Well, I mean, you know, there are gun hobbyists in the real world and there would probably be gun hobbyists in Star Wars too. What would they want? Well, you know, they want something that's super customizable. They want something that's, you know, it's just, it's, they can, they can do all these great little fiddly things with it and just make it super, optimized for their own use you know even if it they just they never actually fire the thing they just really like having it be you know tuned up perfectly and all that it looks cool yeah exactly and it and it's you know like if they ever did fire it it would be perfect i mean like they don't really do that much but if they did they could you know so it's we wanted it's sort of the the hobbyist you know mentality we wanted something to play to that it was like well that would make sense as a product so yeah why not let's have that nice nice Is my guess, at least. That's where a lot of those types of items come from, anyway. No, makes sense, makes sense. But Mondulian might have had something more specific in mind, you would have to ask him. Fair enough. Uh, Greater Bob is curious that there is a lot of
1: great gear and cybernetics for droids, which he appreciates quite a bit. Uh, He is especially interested in ion-shielding armor attachment, ion weapons interacting with cybernetics. Have the devs put any more thought into cybernetics attached to droids and ion damage? If a droid gets hit with an ion weapon without any specific aiming for a cybernetic and isn't shut down due to their now massive soak versus ion, do their cybernetics shut down as as the description in the Edge of the Empire rule for
0: cybernetics? So the Edge of the Empire, I I was looking at that description because I had read this question prior, and the description is kind of vague, actually. Yeah. Um, And it's that way on purpose. um, Because at the end of the day, shutting down a cybernetic completely is very potent. I mean, a character might need a cybernetic to be alive, like if they're Darth Vader. Um, So, that's to give the GM some wiggle room on that. You know, like, you probably shouldn't be able to kill Darth Vader with an ion weapon. That would be silly. Uh, It wouldn't make sense, you know, from a narrative standpoint. And it wouldn't even really make sense from, like, a trying-to-think-it-out standpoint, although that's always a dangerous avenue with with, uh, space fantasy. But, uh... Um, the rules are kind of uh, kind of left open to the GM's interpretation for that reason. So regarding his specific questions, I would say if a droid wants to ion shield themselves, or so I would say, first of all, you know, like if a droid gets hit with an ion weapon and doesn't get completely shut down, it probably shouldn't shut down all of their cybernetics. I mean, maybe it should in certain circumstances. If the attack generates a lot of advantage, that would be a great use of advantage or triumph.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and maybe it should shut down some of them, um, but it probably shouldn't always shut all of them down mostly because it's just not very interesting um for me at Seems least. overly harsh and it and it doesn't lead to much in the way of interesting stuff like if one of the droids legs shuts down because they have a cybernetic leg that's interesting because then they're like okay i have to get around with one leg now and figure out how to also fight this encounter we're dealing with with just one leg or like one of their arms shuts off or something like that's a challenging problem where it's just yeah. like oh all your limbs stop working well, congratulations, now you're a glorified, you know, trash can. Like, you're going to sit there and not do anything. And that's not fun for anyone. It's not interesting. Like, I don't know. Uh, so I, I would not be inclined to have Ion shut down all of a person's cybernetics every time. Um, but it might shut down some of them. And it might even shut down all of them in some cases, depending. Um as for people having to aim at the cybernetic to disable it, I mean, I actually think that's a decent way to handle it. Like, if, if the person sure. wants to make a cold exactly. shot at the cybernetic, then yeah, it shuts that one down, and maybe advantage lets them shut more down or something. Um, and should ion shielding work on cybernetics? I don't see why not. I mean, I think it's one of those cases where maybe it isn't perfect protection, but it helps. Maybe sure. you increase the number of advantage they need to get extra cybernetics to shut down or, you know... That seems well. That's that, could, that seems fair. You could you could take that all sorts of ways and I think there are a lot of good ways to handle it. But um mostly, you know, like using ion weapons against against droids to inflict strain works pretty well as is and using it against cybernetics works pretty well if somebody isn't all cybernetics. If somebody is all cybernetics, I probably would not have ion shut down all their cybernetics most of the time anyway yeah uh unless it's like a really big ion pulse or something, I mean everything's situational there There are times when you might want to you know have anything happen, but most my of impression- the time yeah,
1: my impression was is that the cybernetics that when they were installed in a droid they're not actually cybernetics they're just enhanced components upgrades for that droid, and I wouldn't treat them as as they would in cybernetics in a human uh where the droid has all the, ha- has an internal reactor it's got its own. Uh, rewiring systems, it's, it can go around damaged parts that the, the ion damage would shut off in a normal human who only has sort of one path in, one path out as far as those electronics go.
0: Yeah, that so, makes sense. Uh, I so think that personally, would be
1: I wouldn't have cybernetics shut down, a dro- uh, shut down on a droid doesn't make sense to me.
0: I think that's a perfectly valid ha- way to handle it as well. You could also do something like cybernetics with their own internal power shut down, but others don't, or, or yeah. cybernetics yeah. that are internally power shut down, but if they're out, just off the droid's power source, they don't. Okay. I think there are a lot of ways you could handle it that would be fine, but I definitely wouldn't, you know, try to use it as a way just to prevent droids from doing anything.
1: Continuing the ion questions, uh, from Mura, the ion quality. I understand ion quality would attack on an... A, a droid strain threshold instead of wounds, but I'm playing a gank marauder that ac- eventually wants to essentially turn into a war machine terminator. Anyways, uh, the question is, is if a PC has multiple cybernetics and is shot, how does one categorize cybernetic damage? I vaguely remember a response saying that it would disable the cybernetics and remove all attached bonuses, but I would like clarification if a cyborg is shot with an ion-quality weapon and has the advantage to activate it are all cybernetics disabled or just one per additional success?
0: Yeah, so again, that's a case where, you know, the rules... Dis- I, I was taking a look at the rules discussing that, and, you know, it's it's left a bit ambiguous. Uh, I think one per success would be you could scale it that way, you could scale it off of advantage. Um, you could have it be all the cybernetics. That seems kind of punitive to me, but, um, you know, it's... Uh, I think there are a lot of different ways to run it. Broadly speaking, I will say that if the GM has uh, taken to exclusively targeting you with uh, Ion Weapons, um, something may have gone wrong in the campaign, and perhaps you should have a conversation with the GM uh, outside of it about what has led to this. Sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, But yeah. Um, uh, at the end of the day, the GM should do what's best for the story. So most of the time, I would think an Ion Weapon probably shouldn't de- shut down all of the characters' cybernetics, uh, but it might shut down some that are really inconvenient to have offline.
3: Mm. but really it's gm determined at that point
0: yeah but yeah scaling off advantage or success could work too that could be a decent way to do it
3: Mm, the system would support it right on now obviously cybernetics are a huge part of a lot of our listener questions yeah so phil richard buxton um uh who uh is in chat had a series of of cybernetic questions um that we uh, we can go through um he first of all said, in, in the standard list of cybernetic prices, the the mod 2 and 3 cyber legs and the mod 5 and 6 cyber arms are listed as costing 10,000 credits. Is that for a single arm leg or for the pair?
0: So that is an interesting question. And I uh, would actually uh, – I, I would like to punt on that one <laughs> after a fashion, which is that I um, meant to ask Sam what his opinion That was on Friday because that is a core rule book question, which he worked on. And um, I don't know. I could see it going either way. I reread the section on that and it definitely is not clear. Um, I personally would probably say that given that 10,000 credits is a lot of money, it's pretty reasonable. Given that the difference between having something costing like a hundred credits and 10,000 credits and 10,000 credits and 20,000 credits, those differences are very different. Like one of those is basically plot levels of money anyway,
2: yeah,
0: um, I would say it's not unreasonable that it could be the pair, especially because if you've lost both legs, it seems kind of rough to have to pay twenty thousand to get walking again um but I think there's a argument to be made that it could go that it could be the, just the one um and you need to buy uh you you need to buy two at twenty thousand. Um, so I will uh, ask him about that, and if I'm on again or he's on, you can bug him about that um, for a more definitive answer. But as a GM, I would probably run it as 10000 for the pair, because 10000 is already a lot.
3: That's how I've always run it, man. Um, I mean, just to throw in my two cents on this, it's a lot of money. And furthermore, what you're paying for, for that much money, with actual mod 2 and 3 where you're, where you're getting physical characteristic benefits and other boosts like cyber eyes is another great example where it's one or two. Right. But you got to have, you know what I mean? Um, to to give you a benefit. I mean, that's a lot of money that money should get you the benefit and you you know what I mean? Um, so I, am I, I, to me, it's all just, it's all just narrative. I've always treated it as the extreme cost of those things is not for the hardware so much as the software, and the wetware <laughs> of actually integrating those things to your neurological systems. And once that integration is made for a cyber leg, it ain't no thing to do it for the other cyber leg, for a diff- another cyber leg. You know what I mean? Oh, that
0: would make sense. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about that before. But yeah, that makes some sense to me. I think that would probably be fine. Yeah. But I, uh, but next time we got Sam on, ask him or if I'm on, the, I'll ask him. And if I'm on, next time I'm on, I will uh, give you some a more definitive answer on that.
3: Duly <laughs> noted. Duly noted. Well, um, so Richard also had several other questions. Um, He said, cybernetics are expensive items, in particular when a droid or a gank uh, have many of them installed. Do you have any suggestions for GMs on how to reward those PCs with the implants without the rest of the party getting up in arms about an imbalance of rewards? I mean, uh, you know, like a droid cyberneticist could have like nine different implants. I mean, even with the 50% discount, that could be 30 Gs worth of enhancements. I mean, does everyone else get three lightsabers each? (laughs) You know, um, you know I mean, so he he just really you know without without upsetting the apple card any any suggestions he's interested to hear your thoughts
0: yeah, definitely, so one thing we definitely have tried to introduce some uh more um affordable options for cybernetics in various books as time has gone on. there when we added the gangs and Lords of Malhada, we put in a couple extra cybernetics that were affordable for a starting character, some of them for the gangs with their extra bonus, and some just affordable for any starting character. Um, And it's something we've tried to work in in general because the ones in the core book are very simple and very potent, and thus they're very expensive. Um, So we've tried to add in some more like minor effects cybernetics, and we added some more in in, in here as well um, that are lower cost. Uh, With that said, um, how do you reward that character? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think the first answer is narrative rewards. At the end of the day, um, most characters I've played in most RPGs Weren't after really expensive stuff. They were after some sort of um, some sort of narrative payout or some sort of some sort of other thing. So, like, you know, in some cases, you do have the character who's like, I actually can use, you know, like money actually gets me makes my character better. But for most characters, it's like once you have a pretty decent weapon, you know, you don't see a huge increase in the potency of your character from having items of greater value um or they're just not that interesting to your character's plot right so like getting a better gun is fine but it doesn't have much impact whereas if you're a cyberneticist like you really want new cybernetics because that's sort of part of the whole pitch of your character whereas if i'm a smuggler I, even if i benefit a lot from getting a better blaster pistol it's not super important to the character and the way the character is played mm. um so narrative rewards are a good or at the end of the day i think other rewards feeling equally narratively impactful is probably more important than the rewards having a, an exactly the same, uh, you know, price point. Um, you know, if your character is after, you know, like, uh, I don't know, uh, inventing a, you know, like creating a, a a cure to some plague that's hurting their species, or, you know, like, uh, if your character is trying to support the rebellion, or if your character is trying to, you know, like um, uh, it's just trying to like rescue a lost relative or something, making progress in any of those sort of ongoing quests could be as big as, as, you know, any credit reward to that character's particular arc and to making that player feel rewarded, like, you know, finding that new, like, oh, I I've just figured out this thing about this amino acid chain that'll help me, you know, solve this problem or whatever. I don't know. I don't really know much about biology um, but uh, you know like finding that like clue you need to help you know crack this play terrible plague your species is suffering from could be like as big a reward as 30,000 credits worth of stuff easily to mm-hmm. a to the right character uh, so know what your players want for their characters and then give them those things would be my first piece of advice um my second piece of advice in completely the opposite direction is like, if you want to reward the cyberneticist with a ton of credits worth of stuff, we have plenty of, uh, ways you can spend ridiculous amounts of money on all sorts of things. Um, I mean, uh, so desperate allies is full of, uh, fancy expensive clothing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I haven't yet played a character who is, uh, especially deep in on, um, always, uh, Always looking the best in the room, but I do. I have actually been kicking around some concepts for that, and that you know, like a lot of those items can be really, uh, really great for that sort of flavor. Um, Another uh, interesting thing uh, vehicles. Um, I think vehicles tend to get underrated in a lot of campaigns, especially if you have sort of a home base on one planet that you come back to where you can leave the vehicle or if you have a starship big enough to accommodate it, a vehicle can be really nice convenience, but they tend to be, they don't tend to be as campaign defining as starships. You can't just take it and fly away from your problems the way you can with a starship, um, at least until they catch up to you. Um, but, uh, you can use it to get around more efficiently. You can use it to the GM can, if the players have vehicles, the GM can use that to stage some really awesome encounters. And like I remember there was one game I was in where through a series of events, we all ended up with speeder bikes. And as a result of that, there were a bunch of speeder bike-related encounters. Because obviously, we had these sweet speeder bikes. Of course, we were going to get into some awesome motorcycle chases. Um, <laughs> like you do. So like stuff like, stuff do. like that. And oftentimes, if you really do want to match credit for credit, you can find ways to give your players the more premium option i mean like if you you know a speeder bike is only like a thousand credits but like i'm pretty sure we have the like i i'm not sure exactly where it is i think there's one in chronicles of the gatekeeper but there are definitely some other like souped up you know like space hogs you know like and and stuff like that you know like can be a can be a pretty good uh good comparable point to like a potent, potent cybernetic implant so like there, there are lots of options. Um, then there's some other things that are a little bit less monetarily tangible, but like um, in uh, Far Horizons, um, giving one player a homestead could be a great reward that doesn't get too crazy from like a what do they have on them standpoint. Um, and also uh, droid assistance, um, another good option, especially with uh, you know lots of the droid options that have been introduced. Yeah. Um, having a like dro- an NPC droid butler to help you with stuff, and you know sass you all the time could be uh could be a, a fun you know like a meaningful addition to the campaign that didn't didn't you know like make the player feel too crazy powerful but has a like fun narrative impact
3: this is good and i dude i've got to echo your suggestions on land speeders and air speeders you know what i mean they're they're not as game defining as a as a starship but they're they they can really rack up from a monetary standpoint and and give you the ammunition to make some really fun encounters for your players. I yeah, I, I got to echo that absolutely. Man. And like from the narrative standpoint, like I I think back to one of my old campaigns, one of my uh, my 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 infamous alternate universe campaign from many years ago that ran for a couple years.
1: Oh, I know what you're gonna do.
3: At, at one point the the players um, in this alternate universe of Star Wars where things were different, Max. Um, imagine imagine that uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker. Couldn't bring himself to stop uh, uh, to stop um, uh, uh, Sam Jackson from killing Palpatine. Okay, and then just advance the storyline forty five years. What happens? Right. So it was it was a lot of fun, um, but at one point the PCs helped retake Cloud City from a guy who had who had uh, imprisoned Lando and, and, and had taken it over. And so as their rewards, he gave them an option. He said, "Okay, I can. I, I really want to reward you. I want to thank you." I I'm happy to give you 10,000 credits piece or I can give you one of these. And it's it's a solid gold marker from Lando's casino and what it is is basically a favor from Lando Calrissian. Like a, a, a capital F favor, right? Yeah, the good kind. You know, and and you know, you hang on to this and and I had two PCs take money and the rest were like, "No, I'll take the favor." And as the campaign progressed, from a narrative standpoint, they used those favors to do some really crazy stuff. When, <laughs> yeah, no, I believe it when they absolutely needed. It. And it was to the point the other two pieces were like, "Crap, man, I wish I took the favor." <laughs> and there, there's these rewards you can't even put a monetary value on that are as can be as meaningful to the character in the campaign, uh, Richard as as a cyber limb. So I mean, I got I got I to echo Max's suggestion, man. It, it you know narrative rewards can be a lot more meaningful to a party so
0: Absolutely. or you can just make it rain credits <laughs>
3: make it rain like my old D&D games my, my OG group used to joke that in my games gold rain from the sky at one point in time they were using platinum pieces as sling bullets so because <laughs> uh, they could because they could uh. <laughs> um, okay well Richard's uh, last, last big question here he says um, wants to know regarding cybernetics XP is spent during character creation obviously prior to spending credits does this mean that the discount on cybernetics provided by cyberneticist can apply to any cybernetics purchased during character creation? Uh, I assume the gank species ability would not benefit from the discount, since you're obviously choosing your species prior to gaining the talent.
0: Um, yeah, I would say it does, and then the gank species ability uh, does not apply for that.
3: And there you go. And he says, of course, thank you for your time and, and efforts answering all of the, all these questions. So, Of
0: course. Of course.
3: Um, and then we, Phil, we had a, we had another like before we, before we head into the ships and starship section of yep. this chapter, we had a, a, a remotes and and kind of droid related question, didn't we?
1: We did. Uh, Joe Smoke asked, "Is it intended that minion droids be able to assist with tasks as a group? Swarms of monotask labor droids are extremely cheap and easy for a droid tech to churn out, and seem very good if they can offer skilled assistance."
0: Yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, I mean, it means you have a zillion of these little droids following you everywhere, like the guy in the one arc piece. Yeah. But uh, I don't think that's necessarily a problem, honestly. Um, A monotask chassis still takes quite a bit of time to make, um, even though it's cheap. Um, It's uh, still 24 hours of work, um, and that's if you get it right. right. Making a swarm of them would take... I mean making a good sized swarm of them would take you know practically as long as an advanced combat chassis and it would cost you a couple thousand credits which is about on par with a labor chassis so yes I would say that is that is intended I think that's reasonable I mean the big downside is like you're not gonna be able to take them everywhere with you I mean you could probably try but you're gonna face some challenges if you if you do um you know uh, bars that don't serve droids even aside um you know, like you're not gonna be able to fit them all everywhere. They're small, but like although the character who has like two big like ominous suitcases and then just like outcome monotask murder droids would be pretty cool. <laughs> now I kinda wanna make that character. Keep thinking I of that scene from Desperado
3: with the with the with the guitar right? cases, right?
1: Utterly the guitar case
0: scene. Yeah, actually I really like this idea. I, I take it back. That's an awesome <laughs> character concept.
3: I love it the guitars. Bring your guitars.
1: Uh, Let's moving on to ships and starship combat uh, with Captain Raspberry's question. Uh, The book mentions ship-to-ship electronic warfare, but doesn't get specific. How effective do you feel electronic warfare should be in the game, given the nature of Star Wars as an analog future? Should a YT-1300 be able to completely power down or vent the atmosphere of a ship with a smaller silhouette? An equal silhouette? a larger silhouette? And should the range of electronic warfare be reflected by the ship's sensor range, or should it be a static close or short range?
0: So, personally, my feeling on the matter is, electronic warfare feels a little odd in Star Wars, but what does work for me is the thought that, I mean, like, they clearly have an equivalent to radio. It may or may not be radio, or maybe sometimes it's radio and sometimes it isn't, but they clearly have the ability to transmit signals wirelessly. I mean, You know, they can communicate from starship to starship. Um, So they have the ability... And if you can do that, then you have at least some capacity to mess with other people. I mean, we know that there's jamming. We know that there's, you know, there are various forms of... um, various forms of electronic warfare. Um, But I think, honestly, the ability to power down another ship would probably be relatively... a relatively rare occurrence. My guess would be it would be sort of like... I I would think of it kind of like the radio equivalent of um, uh, historical phone hacking. Do you two know anything about this?
3: Well, like the Captain um, Crunch whistle.
0: Yeah, like how you could you can sort of like spoof a system with the right inputs, even if it's a very simple system. But you are going to be spoofing it in a very rudimentary way. You're not going to necessarily be. You know, like, it's not like you're going to be taking over their computer and, like, operating it manually. It's like, you're like, I know if I do these inputs, I'll get this result of, like, putting a static in all their comms. And then if I do that, it'll be harder for them to hear each other. Or, like, I know if I do this, I can get, like, this thing in their engine to overheat five minutes from now, you know. But it would be very it would be very basic in its functionality. And it would be less... Uh, it would be less like, you know, the 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 film version of, of hacking or even real-world hacking in the, like, modern sense and more hacking in that classical sense.
1: Okay. Fair enough. Uh, um, so, for, the, so for sorry. range... So
0: yeah, with a range, I, I'm sorry. For range, I think it would be probably fine to have it as... Uh, I think you could make a case for sensor range, although I do kind of like setting it to closer or short. Um, Or maybe it's something that, you know, it depends on the quality of the slicer's computer. Um, You know, if they have a rig that can really broadcast, you know, then it could be longer range. Um, So I I think any of those options would work. Nice, nice. Uh, Mandalore
1: the Ultimate wanted to know, how did they come up with the Modular Starfighter? What did that stem
2: from?
3: love the Modular Starfighter.
0: Yeah, that thing is really cool. Um that was uh that was Sterling Hershey uh Sterling Hershey's creation. Um uh, and uh yeah, he he I vaguely recall that he pitched the idea to me of being like I want to have a starfighter that uh, you can completely take apart and put back together however you want and uh and that's kind of where that uh where that went from there. Um
3: and you got all I, those custom attachments reusing that mechanic uh
0: yeah, that was an interesting case where I, I can't remember if this is where the mechanic was thought up or where it was. One of these places um, was the first place the mechanic showed up. And then I later realized it could be like retroactively applied to a bunch of the other stuff. And so it was rewritten to work that way. I don't remember if this was the origin point. But um, in any case, it was a nice place where we were able to get some more use out of that. Um, and the magnetic module rails was actually a later addition um, uh, to, to let you do it really quickly. Um, originally there were some different rules for that, but it, we just went with that really simple, um, you know, hot swapping options. Um, so that, you know, like you could actually, if you roll really well, you might even be able to switch mid battle. Um, you know, you fly back, get different equipment, fly out again. We like that (laughs) idea.
1: That's pretty wild. Yeah. I love it. And Happy Days asks, the Space Tow Truck has medium (laughs) laser cannons listed with Breach 2 and Slow Firing 1. Are those traits, which match the light turbo laser, it also carries, a copy-paste error, or is it supposed to have non-standard armaments?
0: So, um, I was looking at that, and I honestly could not remember, but since we don't generally vary the stats of a specific weapon, those are probably not supposed to be on there. Um, so I'll be looking into that, uh, to see if that's a, uh, one to put in the, uh, you know, things to update for the errata. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would assume that they're supposed to be standard medium turbolaser cannons, so. Dig it. I mean, uh, I don't think it's, like, the worst thing in the world if they have Breach 2 and slow firing, but it's probably not technically correct. right. Uh, The Space Trotuck carries 50 pods.
1: Any chance you could provide us with game stats for those pods?
0: (laughs) Um, Well, I actually think, uh, I mean, we don't have specific stats for the pods. They're meant to be relatively simple um, ships. Uh, Modular Starfighters uh, without any attachments wouldn't be a uh, terrible starting point, honestly. Mm. Um, uh, Or maybe with only the cargo attachment would be a pretty decent starting point if you wanted to go with something in this book. That's probably what I'd use. Makes sense. Sounds good. Sounds good.
3: <sighs> well do you well, want Chris? Do you want to move to chapter three?
1: <laughs> uh, good lord. <laughs> I think we have to. <laughs>
3: All right. Chapter three, ingenious creations. Um crafting. Let's start there. So Max, this is obviously easily the most anticipated part of the book. I know we've you've talked about it briefly already, but again, the design goals for this and, and why it was now included in the game. Did you guys know that this was going to be the book you were going to do it in, and and why 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 include it? I mean, player demand. I mean, what what where where did the genesis of this come from?
0: Um. Well, the genesis came from of uh, this came from the fact that building new stuff is an important thing in Star Wars. And, uh, it is an important theme and it's not especially addressed in the core book. It's alluded to, we have the inventor talent, we have, you know, various things, but, um, we have the, I think the mechanic skill even calls out building new items, but we left it very vague because, you know, we didn't want to get into tons of specific fiddly rules in the core book because that's what supplements are for, um, So here we came with tons of specific fiddly rules for this, Mm. uh, that we tried to keep them, uh, pretty, uh, simple and elegant. And I, I, I'm pretty happy with the final result on that. I think it's fairly sane. Um, uh, and, uh, and not too, not too many things to track at the end of the day. Um, so, uh, as to having them in this book. Yeah. I mean, that was a given once we decided we wanted them, they were definitely going to, we knew that a lot of them were going to appear in here. Um, I did see there was a question about why uh, armor crafting uh, was not in here when it was in Keeping the Peace. Um, and uh, the answer for that is uh, a bunch of factors. Um, the biggest reason we didn't reprint armor crafting, I would say, is that we, there's just a limited amount of space in these books, and we can't fit everything in every book. Um, and since we had done it so recently it didn't really fit with the theme of the technician because we don't really see technicians as the heavily armored up types that tends to be mostly, we've seen that amongst Jedi guardians and bounty hunters. Mm. Um, and since um, uh, it didn't really, um, and since, yeah. And since we had just done it and we have flown space, we decided if we weren't going to have one of them, that would be the one not to have um, in this book. And uh, that's that.
3: Well, there you go. That actually answers the – yeah, because we, we had questions about that from both our pseudonym and Marua. Yeah. Um, well, and, and that makes sense. I, 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 I get it.
0: I mean, if I could fit more than 96 pages of content in 96 pages, you know, first of all, I'd, made, I'd have made the literary equivalent of a, a TARDIS, and I'd be patenting it, but, you know. Sure.
3: So what you're saying is your next project is going to be the literary equivalent of a TARDIS.
0: Listen, when I, can get more, when I can get a book bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, I'll, I'll be telling everybody.
1: <laughs> uh, our own GM Hooley asks the next question. With regard to the crafting rules, on table on, the table on page 77 indicates that a triumph, or four advantages, can be spent to make a schematic which reduces the difficulty by one? Can this be activated multiple times across multiple attempts? The rules suggest that they can be activated multiple times. It makes no mention if this means just in the one attempt, or if it's across multiple attempts across multiple sessions. Basically, I guess what it's trying to get at is, for example, for like a powered melee weapon with a daunting mechanics check, can you get can you attempt that schematic enough and get the schematic result and knock that daunting check down to a simple check permanently?
0: The thought behind it is yes. Uh, if you've made that many crafting checks, um, you have mastered creating that item. Um, yeah. You have access to notes and experience and all these things. And, and and for that particular specific item, the vibro weapon you're trying to make, like you are going to be the you know the, the go-to guy. The go-to guy. You you've made yourself the the master of that particular art. Um, uh. I mean, with that said, if a GM wanted to limit it to one schematic per item. I don't think that would be unreasonable. Um, But uh, I I think it's very flavorful that you can get very... You can really master creating one type of item over time and eventually, you know, really perfect it. Because at the end of the day, time is really your key factor here. You know, for that Viber Weapon, that's 24 hours of work. Um, And I don't know how many campaigns I've had... 24 hours to work on something ever that I've been in. Um, uh, so having like the time to dedicate to that is, is incredibly rare. And then, you know, even, it, even on top of that, there's the costs, but putting aside the costs at the end of the day, the biggest cost is time. Um, so yeah, if you turn your players loose with like a two year break and one person wants to do nothing but craft fibro weapons, the results might get a little silly, but, you know, it, I, I generally think that, you know, like, such interims should not be allowed to be used for, like, an infinite amount of action, because that's absurd anyway. It's not like someone else can go off and, like, you know, use that time to work at maximum efficiency and accrue an incredible amount of wealth, unless you want them to, in which case, you know, you're the GM, you can let them do whatever you want. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Uh, the time requirement is important to keep in mind because that is what keeps the system in check is that your players really should not have enough time enough spare time to do to you know like just make a million vibro swords. And if they do end up with that spare time, then they're probably going to be the best at making vibro swords. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much
3: if they're going to do that, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting.
0: But yeah, if a GM wanted to limit it to one schematic per item, I don't think that would be totally unreasonable as long as the players knew that beforehand. Okay. Yeah.
3: Just set the expectation.
0: Right.
3: So, Joe Smoke had this. All crafting tables have a result for two to spare. Now, you can get one challenge die through the GM upgrading it with the Destiny Pool, but under what circumstances would a crafter be faced with two challenge die in the base difficulty?
0: Well, so for starters, one place this is one thing this is in here for is double or nothing because we knew that people would try to use this with unmatched fortune. <laughs> but uh, uh, fringe uh, lucky crafter build a, builds aside, um, there are lots of ways that you can end up with multiple challenge dice in the pool. Um, I think the you know the biggest one is various various injuries and other effects, but also certain environmental effects can upgrade the difficulty of checks, and th- there are various ways it can occur. Um, it generally is there uh, for those exceptional circumstances where something goes truly and catastrophically wrong, um, and it's not going to come up much. Which is why all of the two despair ones are really, really awful. <laughs> yeah. Let's face it: the GM
1: is well within his own right and purview to say, "No, I'm going to give you an upgrade on this check for whatever reason, as long as it's it's justifiable."
0: Yeah, definitely. And it's those, it's those really dangerous circumstances that, that that represents, you know, it's, it's not something you want to do all the time as a GM. And I normally advise, you know, like stick with dest in most circumstances stick with destiny points. But if they're like, I want to rush trying to make this incredible sword, because I only have, you know, like, 24 hours, and I really normally normally would take 48, you know, but I want to rush it, I'd be like, yeah, you can try that. I'm gonna upgrade it. <laughs> uh, so there's that too. Like you know, there's a lot of narrative ways checks could be upgraded. You know, like they're like, I'm gonna cut some corners because I need to get this done. And it's like, all right, well you can do that. Uh, I'll let you reduce the time. Uh, how many upgrades you want? That's how many you know, six hour periods you can reduce the time by.
3: Oh, right man. on. Well, there you go. Um, uh,
1: what
3: uh, else? Humanoid uh, is Humanoid.
1: curious. Uh, When crafting, do advantage and threat cancel each other out? If they do, I don't see a way for items to regularly, without the use of destiny points to upgrade the check, get flaws on an item that is also going to get improvements. The wording in the book seems to suggest that they do not cancel out, but it isn't
0: totally clear. So, threat and advantage always cancel out. That's just a core rule of the game, that's how it works. Um, They do cancel out in this case as well, and it does mean that most of the time an item is not going to have both a flaw and an improvement um though it certainly can um i the triumph threat result is not that uncommon you know we did a bunch of tests of items see what we came up with because that was one thing we were thinking about was like well they cancel out that's all the less interesting the other advantage of it though is it keeps the system simpler at the end of the day edge of the empire is a narrative system you know it's not it's not like 40k rpg where it's quite as as um you know uh crunchy And and i love crunchy systems um but you know that's sort of not the goal of this system and we could have done a much more complicated crafting system where you you know like pick out what you want to do with an item and that's it sets the difficulty and then you roll and then your advantage determines like what extra stuff you get and your success determines these the stuff you set out in advance like we could have done a system like that but it didn't feel right for this rpg and um this way we didn't and that's the same reason that it's okay that you usually don't end up with don't end up with too many things additional things to track on an item it's either a little bit better than the normal one or a little bit worse but sometimes it's both um sometimes you do get that trade-off um with that said if a gm wanted to do crafting or you didn't cancel advantage and threat that would be fine you could certainly do that um it would be a little outside the normal rules and it would lead to much more complicated items probably but if you want to bring that into your game i'd say go for it i might well do it i think it's a neat idea
3: well, you also, and I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over the point that do realize, uh, humanoid that that if you roll advantage, or excuse me, if you roll triumph and despair, which happens, I, and for my players, a hell of a lot <laughs> um, in in a single roll. I mean, they don't yeah. cancel each other out. So you would at that point potentially have an item with a flaw and a and a, a benefit. So
0: yeah, and you can just get it from threat and triumph too, which is much more common. That's true. That's true.
3: So so there it is.
0: Because threatened Triumph, I see all the time.
3: Yeah, all the time. Or Advantage and Despair. So, yeah, yep. there you go. Yep,
0: two.
3: Um, <clears> too. <throat> next up, Joe Smoke comes back at us. He's curious. Um, to what extent can technicians attempt to optimize existing equipment using the item creation rules? I mean, let's say my, my character has a standard light blaster pistol, and if I want to break it down and rebuild it into a, a light blaster template weapon, how much of the parts cost should I be able to recoup for already having a complete item available?
0: Um yeah so i think that's it's a reasonable question um that's not covered under the rules i can say that in my personal games i would probably say if you want to deconstruct an item um you can get i don't know 50% discount seems pretty reasonable to me um uh but uh but um yeah i think uh there there's no there's no hard rules on it but if you want to take apart an existing item 50% off seems pretty reasonable to me. Off the material price seems pretty reasonable to me. Okay,
3: that makes sense. Um, now, Mandalore the Ultimate had a follow-up. Uh, can you use existing items as templates? One of my players says you should be able to do so.
0: Um. So, from my perspective, uh, I actually think that's a perfectly fine idea. Um, with that said, the GM is the boss, so uh, you get to say whether you think that's a good idea or not to that player. Um if you do go that route, um, the usual route we use for uh, templates is that um, you uh, have the price of the item. When determining the material price, you have the price of the item and um, uh, reduce the rarity by one or two, depending. And then um, that's your material price and rarity. For determining the time, um, that's uh, something we we kind of researched some of these things individually, for instance, um, you know, when I was poking around in these, especially, um, for armor and weapons, I looked a bit into like, well, how long would it take you to make this if you had access to a machine shop and all these things? Um, so uh, it's, uh, there are various, um, looking at the existing templates would be a good way to draw up uh, a, a timeline for it. Um, but with that said, that's not in the rules anywhere. So if the GM doesn't want to introduce that wrinkle, which could probably get crazy in certain ways I'm not thinking of right now, um, they're well within their rights to say, no, you've got to go with the existing templates. But if you want to make up a new template for an existing item, that's how I'd do it.
3: Okay, that makes sense. Um and I, I mean yeah I mean it's it's, keep it simple stupid right, uh, (laughs) um, so plowing through, um, Greater Bob had some questions actually regarding uh getting schematic multiple times that I think you've already answered in regards to Huli's question, yeah, um, uh, very quickly uh I think Marua had an additional question, uh, and again guys as I said we have a lot of questions in limited time so we're having to kind of pick and choose but. Well, one I think is is very worthwhile. Um, What attachments would you allow on a crafted shield? You know, the hard point is four. uh, Or is this a future kind of thing to do? You know, Um, Although the idea of using blunt mods on a shield would be very interesting, like bashing someone's face in with a taser shield.
0: (laughs) I think we have an attachment like that in keeping the peace. Um, I seem to recall we we have something that specifically only goes on shields and bashes them in the face and tases them. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I think shields could probably get most, uh, most attachments, honestly. I mean, like even a monomolecular edge isn't crazy. You know, there've been various historical shields with edges that were used offensively. I don't know if they were ever that sharp. Well, they obviously weren't that sharp. I don't know if they're ever sharpened to a cutting edge, but like hitting someone with the edge of your shield is a, a perfectly valid thing to do um and timely for captain america civil war yeah exactly um, <laughs> uh in in a valid thing to do in a fight i don't endorse hitting someone through shield outside of a role-playing game right um uh but, unless they uh, vi- unless
3: they violate your honor at that point you know
0: or or a captain america movie i guess yeah. um but uh but yeah um yeah, I think I think you could figure out a way for most attachments to work. I mean, like, obviously you're not going to be putting a sight on it, but fortunately those aren't, aren't allowed on melee weapons anyway. Yeah, that's true. Very true. I mean, like, you probably could put a sight on it. I don't think it would do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Great, you've got a sight. Congratulations.
3: All right, well, skipping down, uh, Jaeger Greta is possibly the most excited person on the planet about this book. Possibly. Um, not only has he been asking about crafting for years, literally. Um he's even homebrewed some of his own rules in the past. And understandably he has quite a few questions. Uh we're gonna pare him down a bit. Um he says, first of all, when do we get starship crafting? Kidding, kidding. Uh
0: <laughs> I'm glad he knows well enough to know they won't get an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um He has to try.
3: Yeah, he has to try. He has to try. Um, uh, he says, on behalf of Log 101, has anyone else noticed the crafting table three five, which is ranged weapon template profiles, um, lists gunnery against heavy energy rifle when the examples of these weapons from table three four are heavy blaster rifle and disruptor rifle, both of which are traditionally used with ranged heavy. Um, he assumed this was a typo due to the description, but does that mean there's no template at all for crafting the heavier blaster type weapons, That's like heavy repeaters, like unless you miss something?
0: Um, so you can craft the, those, uh, those heavy repeaters with, uh, a sufficiently good roll and some various appropriate upgrades on the standard energy rifle. Uh. Um, and that's sort of how this system has to work because we couldn't cover everything. We just didn't have enough space. We were like, well, you can increase the energy rifles damage. You can even get it auto fire. Um, you know, it's going to take some good rolling. Um, but that's how that's going to work. Um, uh the examples also, and there there are a few of these cases where the examples are a, a broad descriptor of the sort of thing that goes in that category rather than the specific item. Okay. Um so yeah, in this particular case, there's no specific way to craft those those heavier uh ranged heavy rifles except via use judicious use of the um uh spending uh advantage, triumph, threat and despair tables. Got it. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we can all keep our fingers crossed for the Soldier book or the Bounty Hunter book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, who's to say when we'll revisit it? Who's to say? say? Engineer book more likely. (laughs) Uh, He also says, um, I assume when you craft a weapon or armor from keeping the peace or some other type of gear from a template... The template doesn't change. So, like, if you, if you add qualities from having produced a triumph and a b- bunch of advantage, the next time you produce that weapon or item, those wouldn't carry over, correct? I mean, with the exception. Those accept- do not, no. Yeah. Schematic would obviously be the exception, yep. re- reducing the difficulty. Okay. Um, all right. So, the last real big question he has that he kind of gets into a lot of detail on, but I'll sum it up very quickly. Um... How would you customize templates like stat-wise? I mean, for instance, a heavy energy pistol, how would you tweak the stats? What qualities would you add as default to make it different from the energy pistol template?
0: Um so this is this is gonna be uh more an art than an exact science, but we do have a we do have a, a rough metric for it. Okay. Um so if I wanted to do a customized template, as I mentioned earlier, I would take a look at the item. Uh, I wanted to base the template off of, which, so for instance, for that heavy energy pistol, you know that heavy blaster pistol, um, I would take a look at at that uh, item. I would uh, maybe strip off some of the some of its um, characteristics because we tend to try to simplify because then you add those back on with the uh, with advantage. um, and then I would uh, roughly half the cost um, and uh, roughly. Um, uh, and it say roughly half the cost and I would reduce the, uh, rarity by one to two. Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, for crafting time, I would probably take something it was similar to and increase or decrease the crafting time a little bit. So in that case, I'd probably take the energy pistol. I'd say, well, it's a heavier energy pistol. It's bigger. It's going to take six more hours. So it'll take 18 hours. Um, and then of course, you know, I mean that you might want to, fiddle with that a bit depending on what's appropriate but that's that's my sort of rough you know back of the napkin way i would handle that General i guess if guideline. i was asked to handle that on the spot okay okay um taking off the characteristics or some of the uh, some of the traits or that's something you'll want to do sometimes but not other times the special qualities that's something you want to do sometimes but not other times um generally speaking i would say err on the side of taking them off unless they are really core to the functionality of the item, or they're on, or they're not on the table. Mm, okay. Okay. All right. Well,
3: um, uh, that that uh, Darth Cuddles also echoed Jaeger Greed's question, so I think that I think that helps. Let's yeah, move. Let's move on to kind of a later part of the chapter with slicing encounters because we had some questions about this. Yeah, um, Phil. Much like this, much like the social encounters recently
1: uh, expanded upon, uh, we had some serious questions for uh, on the and some serious rules for hot and sassy slicer on slicer action. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about the design goals for this? Because Really, the, the, the sort of computer versus computer thing has been a realm of, like, cyberpunk games, and, and it's only been touched on a little bit in this game before with a couple things, like defensive slicing from the slicer tree. And this is the first time we actually have a chance where we got definitive rules.
0: Um, so, so what went into the design of, these, of this rule set? Well, the design of this rule set can be thought of kind of like the design of the combat rules. It's not meant to cover absolutely everything that can happen because it sort of can't um by definition, but it's meant to give you a solid framework of what you can do to build upon uh in your own games, so that you sort of have the like basic tools you need for for the storytelling for the mechanical side to tie in with the storytelling of the encounter. So we tried to cover the sort of basic stuff you'd want to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um and then have a little bit of a mini game in it. Um but uh, but that mini game sort of it really comes to life when you've got you know like other stuff adding on to it you know like the important thing to remember is that these just like a combat encounter with two people standing at short range from each other shooting each other is not very interesting or in, a, in an empty room <laughs> shooting each other is not usually very interesting you know a, a slice of encounter with just two people at computers um, using these rules exactly with no other factors coming into it is not going to be very interesting most of the time no. Um, And so like a combat encounter, you need to add other complicating factors to keep things interesting, like maybe putting the slicing encounter in the middle of a combat encounter Um, or, um, you know, having having other factors going on, having multiple people slicing, having complex stuff going on. Maybe there are power fluctuations that keep limiting people's access. Um, So it's, it's meant to be a basic it's meant to be a framework to give you all the basic tools that then you can expand upon. Okay.
3: Well, okay, on that note then, two P five one is curious. Why no slicing maneuvers? There's obviously a lot of actions here. Was it just to limit the narrative results upgrades and the skilled slicer?
0: Um, no, it was really more because we wanted to have um maneuvers open for other things. Um maneuvers are gonna be covering things like um you're you're going to be, you know, like I mean, in many of these encounters, you're potentially moving around. You might like if you're in a slicing encounter, um you know, if you're in a room with computers, you might need to move between multiple computers. You might be able you might need to like pull out a data pad with the information you need on it to uh to, you know, like get into something. You might need to, <laughs> you know, like bust out your old like droid programming one oh droid circuitry one oh one book and try to, you know, like flip to the right chapter. Um so we figured basically what it came down to was well, we could have added a whole set of maneuvers that did those things. We didn't really need to because they're kind of covered by uses of maneuvers that already exist in structured time. Okay. Well, and there's a
3: lot of other. I mean, I would imagine things like brace or other other maneuver specific stuff could apply here as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, or assistance in the same way yeah. as normal. Just the assist maneuver. Yeah.
3: The, po- the point is, there's a lot of there's a lot of maneuvers out there that can still be used. <laughs>
0: And even a lot of actions. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have a means of communicating with the other person, any social action talent suddenly becomes useful. You can taunt them to try to distract them, you can, you know, like deceive them about things, you know, all those things that always come up in those Hollywood, you know, slicing encounters anyway. But I will say I think if you want to flavor this, think of it kind of like some of the things that go on in movies like war games, mm, where like you've got people messing around with computers, but it's not like it's not like the modern sense of that. It's, it's very much more, you know, like, it should feel more 80s to hit that Star Wars feel, I think.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, Phil, we also had a, a question from Geiger Street, yeah?
1: We did. Uh, concerning slicing. If an intruder accesses a system that has even one security program and an active slicer defending that system, wouldn't the intruder nearly always be completely locked down? For example, if the, if the intruder takes an action to disable the security program, let's say a hard check, three purples, their turn is over. Defender takes an action to activate a security program, which is only an average check, two purples, leaving the intruder unable to do anything but try to deactivate the security
0: program again. Rinse, repeat. So, what prevents that from occurring? Well, the first thing is, and we do call this out in here, but the default assumption is actually not that the defender would be aware of the intruder, necessarily, um, even if they shut down their program, they'd only be aware of that if they know that pro- notice that program has been shut down. So they might have to make a perception check to even realize there's someone messing with their stuff. Mm. Um, if they don't, the intruder might get to run wild. But again, I would liken this case to the two people in an empty room, uh, in, on an empty infinite plane shooting each other, you know, with with guns with the same range. Like, it's a very boring encounter. Like, you can do it in the rules, but I wouldn't. And in the same way, I wouldn't set this encounter up as a GM, where it's just one intruder, one program, and one defender, you know. Really, I'd probably set up, I'd probably try to set up an encounter where, like, there are three programs up, and other people on the team need to do things to get the other slicer distracted enough that the uh, attacker can get them all down, and get the, get to the thing they need, while also everyone else is putting on this ridiculous circus of distraction tactics, and you know, like maybe physical intrusion. You know, it should it should feel like a, a heist, right? It sure. should be like lots of moving parts. Um, if it is just one person against one person, then maybe there should be other interesting factors. Maybe they, one of them should have droids assisting them, and the other has you know, like some sort of you know, uh, I don't know, uh, additional uh, additional assistance or. Um, Uh, ways to mess with the other person physically. Maybe they have access to their power supply, and so they have the opportunity to, you know, like, create openings. Um, There should be more going on in the encounter, in the same way that a gunfight shouldn't just take place, you know, in an empty room every time. Right. Makes sense. That makes sense.
3: Now, to cap off slicing, um, Krieger22 had a very simple question. How does technical aptitude, the talent, work with the new expanded slicing rules. And the talent basically says that all computer-related tasks take 25% less time per rank. But obviously when you're working in a structured time with actions and maneuvers, it's it's hard to see how to implement that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, one thing you might do is you might grant a person with technical aptitude a second free maneuver on their turn to mm-hmm. represent the fact that they're just doing things more quickly. So, like, they do not they're not doing things so much more quickly that they can take more actions than the other person, but they're doing things quickly enough that they can, like pull out their, you know, their big book of Imperial passwords faster, you know, when they're, when they're <laughs> trying to get into some system or that they can, you know, get more access to things. So that's one good option. Um, the other thing, too, is that sometimes these encounters may be going on concurrently with other things, in which case it could be extremely relevant. If you need to enact a command to, you know, like, uh, you know, to stop the ship from venting and your comrades are in the ship that's venting, there's a very clear timer on that, and that's how long your comrades can hold their breath. So, you know, in a case like that, you've got the narrative side of it mattering. Um, but if it's just a straight-up encounter with no other things going on concurrently, um, the free maneuver option would be a pretty decent way to simulate it, I think.
3: That's that's a good suggestion. Um, that's a very good suggestion. Um, possibly, maybe also, maybe for every two ranks or something, it may be a boost die? Sure.
0: That would be another good way to do it. I mean, applying boost for... Uh, having knowledge or an implement or whatever is sort of a time-honored tradition. So, yeah, no, I think that that could work well. I mean, like, if you really wanted to break it down, you could even do something where, like, you know, sometimes, I don't know, maybe if you have it, you can spend a triumph to perform a free action or something. You could do something with that. I mean, like, if you wanted to get really fiddly into it. But I think just uh, just a free maneuver on your turns would, would prove pretty big.
3: I I don't disagree. <laughs> Good suggestions. Good suggestions and good questions. So at the end of this section, this chapter, and at the end of the book, the last three pages, we have a section called Technician Rewards where we talk Mm -hmm. about the workshop.
1: Yes. and Mandalore the Ultimate sets off the perfect way to start this section of discussion. What was the idea behind the workshop section?
0: Yeah, so I believe it was... um... Jordan Goldfarb wrote this section uh, and um, honestly I I think I just said, yeah, it was Jordan Goldfarb. I think in my comment to him, I just said, I have a thing on workshops like that's a thing they'd probably want. and he came up with this <laughs> great idea of how to do this um, and I tweaked it a little bit, but basically like basically this is just his idea with a little bit of like a few small tweaks to the implementation. Um, so the thought is to have something, uh, that doesn't step on the toes of the homestead, you know, the functions very differently, but basically the ability to give, you know, like to have, to be able to have, you know, like Tony Stark's lab or Luke's garage or, you know, whatever, but that, or the bat cave, or, you know, like the place that the person goes to, to work on their stuff where they have various things that assist them in, in, you know, creating these awesome things that you're going to make with the rest of the rules in the book. Um, and it's nice because it's a it's a very potent reward, but it's hard to put a put a price on it in a specific way. Mm. And that's why we wanted to do it with a uh, with a, a narrative
3: reward like this. It's a good narrative reward, and there's a lot of options. Yeah, a lot of options. Um, speaking of those options, Deslock as said he said I was reading the work- workshop section last night. It said one of the upgrades could reclaim 50% of the material costs with more costs reclaimed with expenditure of advantages. thing is, it doesn't say what, how much of an advantage will recover. Is like one advantage equals 25% more or less? Thoughts on that?
0: Um, I, we, I left that ambiguous on purpose um, because I think that that should vary a little bit situation to situation um in some cases uh being able to reclaim 100% you know if it's, if you're working with some super rare material being able to reclaim 100% you know might be might be really too powerful or it might just not make a lot of sense i mean maybe you're working with something where like you know it's a transformative process and like the material you're working with gets turned into something else and if you don't do it right it's useless so in that case it wouldn't really make sense to be able to get back 100% i think an extra 25% Four, two advantage would be perfectly reasonable. Um, You know, but maybe it depends on how, like, easy the... Maybe it depends on your process, too. Like, maybe it's only one advantage if it's, um, you know, if it's just, like, I don't know, uh, you know, sort of plug-and-play stuff, and it's, you know, like, five advantage if it's something, you know, if it's, I don't know, kyber crystals or something, you know.
3: (laughs) That's good advice. Indeed. Well I think we had one final question for the workshop section, yeah?
1: Yeah, we did. It's from What Frog, who asked, I like the workshop section, well timed for my group. But there are no guidelines for how much it costs to add advanced benefits. These kinds of guidelines were provided for upgrading homesteads in Far Horizons. What sort of advice do you give for upgrading workshops?
0: So the reason we didn't include these as we did with Homesteads was because we wanted this to be a little bit more of a narratively handled thing than Homesteads, which are pretty pretty mechanically focused. Um, for the cost to add these... So the the cost is sort of left narrative. The other reason is because these can be... These are very different things, like emergency containment measures depending on what environment you're working in might be very different if you're trying to install those on a spaceship like maybe that's really easy it's just doors that you can you know it's just the uh you know the the bulkhead doors you already have um whereas you know in a in a home built if it's built into a homestead that might be like completely different um so the the particulars of the options are going to vary based on like the size of the workshop you're talking about the the uh the specifics of how it's set up um just that and the other thing so there wasn't really a good one size fits all option for the cost i mean with that said i would say pretty much all of these are worth a few thousand credits um bare minimum um so you know if you wanted to set a like three to five thousand credit range for them that would be fine but some of them might be really cheaper too i mean you know like comforts of home might be something that you can't put a price on maybe that's maybe getting that upgrade you know it's like photos of your family or something. I don't know. Um, you know, and that's not something you, you can really cost out, you know, in a meaningful way in an RPG or in real life. Um, I don't know, maybe additional workspace might be, you know, like impossible to get on a, on a a small spaceship and, you know, like, uh, very just like, Oh, the next room over if it's in a homestead or, or like an industrial facility. So, you know, I think there's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of um, specific to the case, but a few thousand credits, to be sure, at least, I think, if you're going to put a price on most of these. Sounds fair.
3: If you can put a price on friendship, love, and family, which I don't know that you can't. Oh, uh, well, guys, I think uh, in the interest of time, because Phil, I know you've got to drop off here. Sadly, I do. I think we need to kind of uh, uh, put a wrap on this particular discussion. Mm-hmm. Max I know this was a grueling two and a half hours <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. no it was, a, it was an enjoyable two and a half hours I, I had a lot of fun
3: I did too but I, I really want to again thank you for, for coming onto the show and really giving of your own personal time to do this for all of us and answer these crazy questions and uh, it's, it's uh, very important to myself obviously um, and, and obviously the fans as well so thank you for your continued support oh,
0: thank you it was great to be on here
3: Good stuff. All right. Well, with that, Gamer Nation, uh, we're going to leave you be. Obviously, we're going to be back on the airwaves in about two weeks' time with an episode planned for the 8th of May on Sunday. <laughs> um, looking forward to that. But, of course, uh, we want to know... Uh, what you want us to talk about We have several plans In the can um, I think we're probably Going to head back To a, one of our Specialization discussions um, That Sunday We've had several Listener requests
1: I think we're going to have to We're long overdue for one.
3: We're very long overdue But other than that uh, We really want to know What you guys want us To talk about So become a member Of the Gamer Nation Head to d20radio.com forums Register Post your mind and while you're at it, leave us a line or call in. And tell us why you never listened to the Order 66 podcast. You can give us a buzz at 262-D20-RADIO. That's 262-320-7234. Or email us. You can also email us not only questions for the show um, and show suggestions, but liners as well. Um, GM Chris, GM Phil, or GM Dave at d20radio.com. Uh, and with that, Gamma Nation, thank you all. This is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and love. And good gaming.
1: And this is GM Phil. May the dice be with you.
3: Post show. Oh, I dropped it too early. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, that's that's just fun and happy. I'm I'm really I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to do this, this, this right here. I'm supposed to do this. <laughs>
1: This podcast and related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items, are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order Sixty Six Podcast and the Gamer Nation LLC. <laughs> show
3: All right. Well, I know Phil had to drop Max. Um, if you got a few minutes for post-show, I'd love to have a quick discussion with you.
0: Yeah, definitely. I will be happy to tell you my boring steak story. I
3: want to hear the boring steak story. Tell me all, right. all about this boring steak story.
0: So uh, it was it was Gen Con and last year, and uh, every year a couple of my coworkers um, do this thing where they um, because we get a meal stipend, they uh, they they bring food. For most of their meals, and then they go to a fancy steakhouse and basically, you know, spend their meal stipend there. Classic,
3: um, classic work travel shenanigans. Yes,
0: exactly. I mean, it's it's not even really shenanigans, right? It's just like you know, it, we're so busy at the con, there's barely time to eat anyway. So, sure, not sure. spending five bucks a meal is or well, six or seven if you're trying to eat around there, uh, if you're lucky, is is pretty easy if you bring like some granola bars. So, anyway, I decided to get in on this because, like, hey, why not, right? Um, So, uh, so we went to, um, uh, St. Elmo's. uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, which I had not been to before, um, and it was great, um, but, uh, so anyway, everyone was ordering, and, um, and, uh, I realized that they had a, they had a prime rib on the menu, and it was actually pretty reasonably priced, even, um, you know, like, I think I may have gotten the cheapest thing of all the people who ordered, but it was cartoonishly enormous. It was like 32 ounces or something stupid <laughs> oh, like that. God. Um, it was, and again, it, was like, it wasn't it was that expensive. So I was like, all right, well, you know, I'll just order this and like, I'll share some with other people. That'll be fine. Um, uh, and, uh, and then we just all ate way too much steak because 32 ounces of prime rib is just stupid. It's, it's just so much meat
3: two pounds
0: <laughs> it's, it's just so much meat i didn't realize how much meat it was i was like all right i'll give like half away and i was like i gave like two thirds away and i did i barely finished the third i had left <laughs> um everyone else had ordered these like little things that were like much i mean still a lot of meat but like comparatively little but when mine came out it was just fucking absurd
3: <laughs> so anyway that,
0: that was that was that's the whole story we did finish it actually um uh, but, uh, but it was just like, all right, I, I thought I was gonna, like, give you all a little bit, but everybody's getting a huge cut of this, cause,
3: yeah. Oh, oh that's funny. And, I... of course,
0: it's, you know, we're, we're in hotels, it's not like we have a refrigerator or anything, it's not like I can take it to go or anything, it's like, right. well, this, this, this has to go here, and then, you know, I went back and fell into, like, a meat coma until the morning, so.
3: Say meat coma followed by the meat sweats.
0: <laughs> yep, yeah, the meat sweats were real. I'm just glad I didn't do the, um. Everyone else decided to get the, uh, they do a Caesar salad there, um, with, like, you know, a classic Caesar, so it's got, like, anchovies in it and stuff, and- Oh, God, yeah. I'm so glad I didn't do that, because I think I would have died.
3: Oh, man, that, uh, I love a classic, classic Caesar. No, the, um, you know, we, we, do, we do our own convention, and, you know, our, we just had our third annual convention for Gamer Nation Con, right?
0: Yeah, Sam just got back from that. Yeah, God,
3: so great to see him. That was his second year out there, um- and uh, uh, we we had we have a really good time. So on Saturday night, though, we we, we do a thing where we have done a thing where um, we at, at about about eight or nine o'clock we kick everyone out who's under twenty one, and it's it's BYOB and things get crazy. Gamer Nation Con after dark, right? Mm-hmm. And it, we we actually had a a, a, a director and marshal lip sync battle, uh, which was epic. Um, and then and then the alcohol starts flowing pretty heavily. Yep. Um, and yeah, like, like we were saying earlier, at one point, I I. I I I'd, I'd, I'd had a lot to drink, and the, the Canadian contingent that comes down uh, takes care of a, a lot of us. They, they get kind of crazy, and they brought me a bottle of this maple syrup whiskey.
0: Uh-oh. Oh. That, oh. Sounds, that sounds dangerous. It
3: is. <laughs> um, it is. And then they started making Caesars, which uh, is, is a, a tall Bloody Mary served in a mason jar uh, rimmed with uh, celery salt. Um, and I believe they also throw in a shot of extra liquor of some other type randomly. Um, if I remember correctly, it was kind of hazy. Um, and I had a couple of those. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it just kept flowing and right around midnight and, and keep in mind, like this convention, it was really rough because one of our, one of our three directors who, you know, there's only two of us with keys and, and, uh, one of them is, is it was Dave and he was actually, he missed the first two days of the con because he had to travel for business. So it's just me. So as as a key holder. So I'm there until after two AM every night, you know, clocking up and there at eight in the morning to open. Oof. And you know you're getting just just a couple hours of sleep really, and 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 in prep it was like this for days. So all that catching up with me, plus a lot of alcohol. At one point, at around noon, I'd started a uh, I'd started a huge game with like ten players of I don't know if you've read it's free. It went around the interwebs for a while. It was a two pager RPG this guy had created called Here's Some Fucking D and D. I don't know if you've See I this? haven't
0: seen that one. I'll have to look that up, though. I've been looking at uh, one-page RPGs a lot recently. They've, for some reason, captured my attention. Um, oh,
3: man. that That's actually my my Jones. I've got a slew of one-pagers. Um,
0: have you played uh, Lasers and Feelings?
3: I, I not only have played it, I will, I will email you the template I have for a business card-sized character sheet I had created. Nice. That you can carry around then just, you know, pass out to people to throw down Lasers and Feelings. So, yeah, John Harper did Lasers and Feelings. He's done that. Um, Ghost Echo, another one pager, um, is really good. I actually just got to throw that down with our Patreon group um, this past Saturday. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, And he's got other smaller, smallish, like Lady Blackbird, which was pretty critically acclaimed.
0: Yeah, I've been meaning to read that one. One of um, one of my coworkers uh, mentioned that uh, she thought it was it was one of the one of the most standout uh, indie RPGs she'd read. I,
3: I I would I would echo that sentiment. I really would. Um, it's it's very good. I've I've run our local group through it, and uh, it's it's uh, very fun. Um, but yeah, so this this one pager called "Here's Some Fuck in D and D," and it's it's very blue, very very uh, very off color. Um, and just crystallizing a Dungeons and Dragons experience down into two pages. And nice. you, that your character sheet exists with one stat line, basically, like old school monster manual entries, right? Um, And so we, we'd set this up. And, and literally, I, I'd started into narration. And one of my buddies, Chris Bradshaw, was next to me. And I realized I had to use the restroom. And I was like, okay, take over for me. And I went to go to the restroom. And that's the last thing I remember. And they found me passed out in a chair in the hallway. And,
0: yeah. Well, I I have to say that does sound like a very quintessential convention experience. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're running the convention. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> but apparently, it took all they had to keep one of our marshals from drawing uh, uh, adult body parts on my face with a sharpie. So,
0: well, um, I was gonna say, I mean, had you had you broken the the uh, rule of party etiquette that dictates they're allowed to?
3: Uh, no, we have never broken that rule, so
0: because my understanding is if you fall asleep with your shoes on, people are allowed to draw on you. Yeah, I,
3: oh, see okay that I'm not familiar with see. And I did have my shoes on, so I guess i'm I'm
0: that's that's what I've been told anyway i I admit i I haven't been to many parties where that was the case, but I had a <laughs> I had a buddy in college who who swore by that rule that if you fall asleep with your shoes on, you obviously didn't mean to fall asleep, which means people get to draw stuff on your face.
3: Well this works, this works um I, I will maybe maybe we'll publish that as our next uh yeah shoes shoes on uh drawings acceptable Shoes stuff off. gets
0: drawn on your face yeah it's fantastic
3: okay done done and done okay you mentioned it before we we're talking about it do you have five minutes to have a spoilerific conversation about the end of season two of rebels are you caught up
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I am caught up. I actually, it's funny. I haven't seen all of season two yet, but as soon as because I fell behind a while ago, and then I just haven't caught up yet. But as soon as the finale came out, I was like, I should just watch this immediately so that I don't have it spoiled. Uh, so I skipped ahead. It made perfect sense with no context, um, having seen like a little, like a few episodes at the beginning, and then basically nothing else. I was like, up. Yep, this all makes sense. So <laughs>
3: well, you know, they, the, they they do this episodic thing, right? You know, yeah. so it's yeah. It's, well,
0: season one was a little more like. Um, a little bit more because it was shorter and it was more condensed. It was a little bit more like beat for beat each one into the next. Yeah. Um, Whereas season two is more like feels more like Clone Wars in that regard. Um, But yeah, definitely. It was just like, OK, Yoda sent them to this planet. Yeah, no, it was it was really good. I was impressed.
3: OK, well, before you get to that. All right. So listen, listeners, if you're not caught up yet, spoiler alert, we're about to talk about spoilers from season two of Rebels. So and some of season one. So there we go. All right. And turn off the podcast now if that's the case. Okay, you've had your time. Okay, so what the F, dude. So okay, first of all, you know that uh, Sam Witwer, who's a uh, you know voice actor and, and, and a good friend of the show, has been on a lot. Um mm-hmm. obviously returned to voice Darth Maul for this. Yep. Um
0: He also voiced uh, Palpatine in his appearance, didn't he?
3: He did, he did, uh, when Palpatine's appeared. He does he does the one one of the best stories Sam's told me is he actually had a chance to meet Ian McDermott at a con.
0: Oh really? That's awesome.
3: Um and he was like and it was like, Oh yes, and who are you? He says, Basically I'm you and they can't afford you. Um, so i thought thought that was great but that's um, great yeah it's absolutely wonderful um uh the so anyway yeah man i mean so okay talk to me about the ending what what i mean is is ahsoka dead
0: so here's the thing i think ahsoka is as close to dead as we're ever going to get her i think she's gone Mm -hmm. but i don't think they're ever gonna say She's definitely dead, but I don't think they're ever going to say anything else about her except Force Visions either. That's my prediction. Because, like, I I suspect that she's just too dear to the people involved. I mean, she is their thing. She's their baby, right? She's their character. Like, actually killing her off would be very hard, but she can't really live. So, like, I think she's... She's Schrodinger's uh, Tagruda, right? <laughs> she is. She is. You know, like she's she's gone, but she is neither simul- She is simultaneously dead and alive.
3: Okay, which that's... sort of
0: fits with the whole mystical theme of the Force, anyway. That like, you know, she never learned the technique to become a Force ghost, so she can't. But like, even if she doesn't, like, I would be shocked if she doesn't return in a Force vision or something at some point. But
3: maybe. maybe that's just my take on it. Maybe I, I don't know. I,
0: I I think she's dead, though. I mean, from a like practical standpoint, ef- I think she's
3: effectively gone. dead. Yes,
0: um, because they needed to have. Uh, she needs to be gone to complete, you know, Anakin's transformation to Vader. She is yeah. the last like lifeline of humanity he had. And the last chance for an out. Yeah. Because Obi-Wan already gave up on him. Yeah. And he doesn't know about Luke and Leia yet. So Ahsoka's really his last, like, his last shot at redemption. And he had to cast it aside. I did think it was really interesting that they chose not to make clear whether he killed her or the device going off did. Yeah. we don't know if he had it in him at the end of the day. And I thought that was a really good choice.
3: Well, it's interesting. I've watched a lot of interviews, and they talk about why they even introduced her character to begin with, because they, she was so universally fan hated when she was introduced. Um, you know, in, in in the Clone Wars back in the day, was that you know the whole point was we have to give we have to give Anakin a a a foil and a, and a method of conflict because you, you can't you can't you can't make that Padme because their relationship is very well established by the time Episode Three rolls around, right? so so who do we who do we what would what, what we do all right and that was that was it and the fact that they kept that going as a way to resolve as you just said his his basically final push into complete non-redemption at least until his son comes along yeah um is he
0: believes himself beyond redemption he now. believes that's yes, the important thing. that's
3: the important thing is he believes himself completely beyond redemption and i thought that was interesting and i I Maul's still floating around the galaxy, and they've already said, yeah, he'll be back for season three. Oh, you know, yeah, that's... he will, of course. Um,
0: Though with that said, I think Maul is probably going to die in Rebels, because Rebels is clearly the, like, clip all the loose ends from Clone Wars show. Yep. And uh, also Obi-Wan has to kill him, and they've said Obi-Wan's going to show up. He it's better. Gotta, it's got to be Obi-Wan. Because he... Obi-Wan, because that way you can say... That way, it is true both ways. They get to have their cake and eat it, too, that Obi-Wan killed Darth Maul, but Darth Maul didn't die at Naboo. You know, like, if you watch that movie and you see Obi-Wan kill Darth Maul, you're like, yeah, Obi-Wan killed Darth Maul. And then if you later find out, and you're like, wait, Darth Maul lived this whole other life and did all this other shit? And it's like, yeah, but Obi-Wan still killed him. Oh, okay, everything's (laughs) still the way I know it. Like, the world isn't upside down. Like, so that's, that's my guess about that, but, like... Same, for the same reason that Ahsoka has to be long gone by the time A New Hope rolls around, Obi-Wan has to be the one to kill Darth Maul.
3: Yeah, I, I kind of have to agree.
0: Do so you... my suspicion is they're going to work Maul, and Maul is, Maul is clearly really a lonely old man at this point, at the end of the day. Like, he really wanted... Ez- I, I thought that they made... It was really interesting. They made it clear that he really wanted Ezra as an apprentice, not especially because he needed an apprentice, but because he's just lonely,
3: yeah, and okay, the the obvious Yoda parallels there were like when when Yoda first encounters Luke, yeah, were so beautifully done. Oh yeah, they did um, a great job with in, that. In the in the tone, he starts off as this incredibly hunched old man, right. But as he, the more time he spends with this kid, the more he straightens up as the episode goes on, the less old mannish he appears, the more color comes back into him, where you can even barely see a hint of red initially. And then it, if you watch it again, as, as it goes by, beat for beat, they keep lightening his color, okay, um, even before he takes off the hood. Interesting. Um, it, it's just, it's very, 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 very interesting and very well done. Um Obviously, a lot of people have, have, have guessed that Ezra is going to have a serious issue falling to the dark side, you know, um, and now that he can think like a Sith and can actually access the holocron as they showed at the end of the episode and made a pretty much beat you over the head with the fact that no, no Jedi can open that. We don't know, uh, you know, but we can still use it, uh, you know, um, I thought it was interesting. The other question that came up for me was why the hell would Yoda send them there?
0: Well, Yoda is, especially at this point in his life, playing a very big-picture game. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, he also... there. You know, people have put forth all sorts of theories that, like, Yoda kind of uses Luke, right? Like, he does... He do, he, it does teach him, but, like, ultimately, Luke is an implement of Yoda, you know, like, returning balance to the Force as the prophecy foretold in some ways. And so, like, you know, I don't think he's... It's kind of like with with Dumbledore and other characters like that. Like, I don't think he's entirely meant to be, like, wholly manipulative. But he is playing a very big-picture game. And sometimes that means sacrificing certain pieces. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Ahsoka and Ezra and Kanan are, are on that list to some degree. I mean, I don't think he sent them there knowing they were going to die. But I think he might have sent them there aware of that possibility.
3: Mm. yeah it's like it's like you know listen you're you're not the one you know what i mean
0: yeah they're not they're not the chosen one this needs to happen jedi i mean the jedi way is risking your life for the good of the galaxy right at the end of the day like fundamentally it is doing the right thing even when the right thing is dangerous and hard yeah um and so to ask them to do that is not so unreasonable from that perspective but you know it's it's one of those tricky things it's the it's the i mean it's the like you know that that uh price of responsibility and power right that mm-hmm. like if you're a military commander you need to make calls where people di- your people die either way yeah um and i think i think they've played a bit with that with yoda and it is sort of another bridging thing from clone wars that makes a lot of sense like he's willing to send clones to their deaths and even jedi to their deaths in clone wars when it's necessary he doesn't he's not happy about it he doesn't do it you know gleefully but he he does do it when it needs to happen um and i think in the same way like something has to happen out of like that sith holocron has some purpose it needs to be in their hands and yoda knows that and like if they don't all make it, that's, that's sad, but it's maybe unavoidable in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that was my take on that, at least, was like, there's some greater destiny at play here, which is kind of, you know, the whole thing. I, I'm very curious about um, Ezra's potential future because he can't become a Jedi and live. No. He can become a Jedi and die or he can fail to become a Jedi and potentially live as long as there's a good reason his character can't interfere in the occurrences of the films.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, But he can't both become a Jedi and live according to the like very specific, you know, rules set up by the, you know, what, what Obi-Wan and, uh, and uh, Yoda say. And it seems for all intents and purposes, like the canon is cleaving pretty closely to that. Yeah, like Max von Sydow's character, you know, in the visual guide is is discussed as like he's knowledgeable of the Force. He's a sage, but he is not a not a Force user. He's not a Jedi.
2: No.
0: Um. So like you know, the people who would have been alive in that interim are are not Jedi, uh, and they've even sort of set that up with Ahsoka, although it doesn't seem to have saved her. Um. But like, you know, they they could do that. But yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I'm very intrigued to see where it will go, and obviously because they're, it's almost like a puzzle. You're watching a puzzle being put together, and because you have these these clear borders that have been defined, you know what I mean. So how are they going to fit these various pieces in? It, it's interesting, yeah. and I, I do sincerely hope that that Obi wan is the one who ends Maul. Uh, I mean, the two have to have this this reckoning, and and what Maul has to be feeling towards him has got to be intense. Um, there was it's all non-canon now, but there was a uh, an old like Star Wars Tales comic.
0: Um, the one where they like clone of Maul thought Vader.
3: Oh no, you, that, that was one of them. But there was a, there was a different one where it was it was that Maul survived, and this was before Clone Wars was ever created. And it was it was Maul survived, and he he ha, he had these cybernetic legs that were like chicken like chicken feet almost. Um, and very very creepy looking, and his whole point was the whole thing he did after surviving was I have to, and, and, and getting healed and, and getting the cybernetic legs no one knew he was alive, but it was, I have to find Obi-Wan Kenobi and I have to kill him. And, and, you know, that was the, the whole point. And the comic dealt into also the question of where the hell Obi-Wan was during Luke's childhood. And it, it, It it took the tact of, like, he actually was involved in his early childhood, like, up till he was, like, you know, six or seven, you know, I mean, he would would show up, he would be there, he would have talks with him, you know, the idea is, okay, I gotta watch over you, I gotta train you, you know, secretly, surreptitiously, and the Lars family wasn't exactly happy about it, but they kind of let it happen, and when Maul shows up on Tatooine and finds Obi-Wan, and it's this incredible fight, it ends up spilling onto the Lars homestead. And they have this incredible fight and, and Maul's got Obi-Wan pinned down and he's about to deal this death stroke and he's horribly wounded. And this blaster shot rings out from nowhere and hits Maul in the back of the head and kills him. And the, 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 the frame pans out and it's Owen Lars who took this shot and killed him. And he, he stands over, beaten and bloody Obi-Wan and then the corpse of this half-cybernetic thing and basically is like has this moment with Obi-Wan where he's like, never again. This is what you bring on my family? Never again, you are not welcome here ever
0: They've shown that they are happy to work in old, interesting stuff. I mean, look at all the old republic stuff that yeah, appears in yeah. uh in you know Twilight of the Apprentice. Um, I would not be surprised at all to see that adapted as an episode with Obi-Wan. It's, it's, a,
3: it's a great, great story, and it explains a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I mean, I know those, you know, they they they're, everyone who works on that show is a Star Wars fan, too, and they know the old source material, and they're in this very enviable position, I have to say, of being able to take everything they want, ignore everything they don't, and, you know, like... Interpret as they will. You know, it's a, sort of a creative dream in some ways. Although yeah. I'm sure there are all sorts of like complicating factors that we don't see as outsiders to the process. But <laughs> uh, knowing a little bit about creative processes, there's always all sorts of complex factors going on. But um, but even so, like it's really cool that they're in this position. We're kind of like with the Marvel comics, you know. Uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, they can be like, well, let's take this plot arc but change these things because that's more in keeping with the times. And maybe you change this part because that didn't really make sense. And, you know, like smooth this down a little bit so that they don't have to understand 20 years of backstory, you know.
3: Yeah, 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 that makes sense. But I'm, I'm just eager to see where it goes. I was eager to get your thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if like, I mean, we know that, you know, like Maul is like. We know that Maul is is driven by revenge and uh, lonely, and they've said that Obi-Wan's going to show up. I wouldn't be surprised if we found out, like, Maul tries to, you know, get Luke as his evil apprentice. And, you know, he probably wouldn't actually have him meet Luke, but they might have it, like, you know, he figures out that he's Force-sensitive, and then he and Obi-Wan fight or something like that. They could go that route.
3: It, it could be the other thing too. I think he's he's probably going to go after the Empire in some fashion. His I think so too. His words made that very clear. He's like the Empire has taken everything from me. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean the other person who could kill him is is of course you know Palpatine. They could have Darth Sidious kill him because they left that as a possibility of his ending in Clone Wars. And I clearly, some, clearly some clearly some stuff happened in the interim where Maul got loose again. Yeah. But uh, I think there was a comic about it or something maybe.
3: Hmm.
0: I, I feel like it, it might have been.
3: I'll have to look it up.
0: I could be totally wrong about that, too. Well, I probably should head out. I got to get out of here before the alarms turn. I on.
3: know, man. I was going to say, man, I will. Uh, I know it's late where you are. I really appreciate you uh, sticking around to jaw with me about this stuff. And um, thank you again, Max, for your time. And, uh, and uh, hope to talk to you soon.
0: Well, I just hope you weren't too bored by my incredibly boring steak story.
3: I loved the steak story. So. <laughs>
0: All right, I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me on.
3: Thanks again. Gamer Nation, good night and good luck.